lights. And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. Welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio with you till 3 on this Thursday with plenty to do over the next few hours. Coming up, ACC kicked off their media days yesterday. The concerns for the ACC moving forward and really college football as a whole. Plus why the ACC should be a lot more interesting this year. Get to that coming up. Plus, today we break down the Big Ten. We've been doing a Power Five conference each day this week. Today we'll preview the Big Ten. Who's going to win the conference? Which teams should you be on the lookout for? And what are the biggest storylines for the Big Ten this year? I'll give you my biggest concerns for each NFL team. Today we look at the AFC, tomorrow the NFC. Plus, which coaches in the SEC are the most likable? Is Shane Beamer at the top of that list now? The ESPYs were last night. We'll touch on that. And when it comes to college football, can a couple of programs try to remain hungry after having certain success last year? We'll also look ahead to week one of the NFL season. I believe the NFL kicks off seven weeks from today. So we look ahead to week one. And now already, it's never too early, never too soon. Seven weeks out, give you my favorite picks. Bets or plays of week one of the NFL season already as we get ready to go with football coming up right around the corner. All that and more throughout the afternoon. You can join the conversation throughout 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays, on Facebook at ESPN Radio Charleston, via email studio at kirkmanbroadcasting.com or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there. Or you can even take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. And while there, leave a comment for the show. Listen to the podcast. Everything else, charlestonsportsradio.com. With you till 3 on this Thursday, Trent's on the steel wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing well. I know this is a uh, special day for the friend behind the glass right there, but uh, it's a great Thursday. I'm feeling good. The ESPYs were good last night. I'm feeling, you know, like it was it was okay. It wasn't great, but uh, everything went well. I was excited for it, and uh, I'm glad to be here on this beautiful Thursday, Luke. Mark. Yes, good to have you. Yeah, it's just another Thursday here in the <laughs> middle of the summer with plenty to do. Uh, let's start with college football. Um, with Media Day is going on this week. Of course, there's a lot of talk about NIL, and there's a lot of talk about uh, realignment and the direction in which college football is moving in. You know, college football, as we've been saying, 
It's becoming a lot like the NFL. I've heard coaches say such a thing. I heard Mike Leach talk about how we should just have free agency and trades in college football, that if Arkansas needed a kicker during the season, they could send one of their wide receivers to another program, get back a kicker, just essentially doing trades, make it more like the NFL. I think back to you know Seinfeld and the episode in which Babu Bhatt moves in and opens a, a Pakistani restaurant. Well, at first, it was just an American restaurant, and Jerry goes into the restaurant and gets to know Babu, and there's nobody in the restaurant, and Jerry comes up with the idea to Babu Bhatt that we have all these other restaurants on the street that are just like yours. Why don't you try to do something different? Why don't you bring something different to the table? You can corner off a certain demographic that doesn't have any other competition. And, of course, as the episode goes, Babu does try to do something different, leads to him going bankrupt, losing the restaurant, eventually gets deported as well, and it's a whole mess throughout that season of Seinfeld. But the idea being, you know, we already have so much of this other stuff. Do something different. And it's similar at college football. We already have the NFL. Why don't you try to be a little different instead of just becoming very much like the NFL? And in the process, we're going to lose some of the great things about college football. The rivalries, maybe even the innocence, uh, the road trips, the communities. It's going to become just like the NFL where you don't have some of those things that make college football distinct and special. Here is uh, Paul Feinbaum was on a podcast with Greg McElroy yesterday. And Feinbaum, Feinbaum can be always a little hyperbolic. But he does not like what the future may hold for college football. Here's what Paul had to say. Ultimately, I, I think college football is headed for the cliff. Really? Um, I don't think it's going to happen immediately. Uh, but things move so slowly. Things uh, don't happen quickly in, in regard to change. And, and at some point, I, I, I do believe there is going to be a serious disconnect between the fans and, and the game, not the players, but the game and the people that run it. Because you know, we always look at, well, you know, popularity polls for politicians continues to plummet. I think the same is going to be said of college administrators in the future. Uh, fans love the players. They love the coaches. But they're, I think they're going to start turning on the, the presidents and even the commissioners. Now, Feinbaum is always a bit like a weatherman. He always takes it to the extreme. The idea that college football is falling off a cliff, I think, is certainly extreme. I think college football will be just fine in its popularity. And if you want to say, well, it's becoming more like the NFL, there's a reason for that. Because the NFL is the most popular sports league that we have in the country. Maybe is isn't a bad thing for the sport itself to be moving in that direction. That's where the disconnect comes in. And that's where I agree with Feinbaum in the sense that, yeah, college football fans, I could see having a distaste for the decision makers in college football. I don't think it impacts the sport itself. I don't think you're going to stop watching as much college football as you do. I don't think you're going to care less about college football moving forward. You just may not like the commissioners or the school presidents or the ADs that are in charge of all the shuffling around and whatever college football may turn into over the next, let's say, 10 to 15 years. But you'll still watch the, the, the product, watch the sport. And that's where that disconnect comes in where we deal with this in really everything especially professional sports. You wonder, like, why are these guys always jacking up the ticket prices to go to an Atlanta Braves game? Well, because they're running a business. And as the fan, you wish things were a lot cheaper. As an owner of a baseball team, they want to make as much money as they can. You go to a store, you go to a restaurant, whatever it is, we always get upset, like with Jeff Bezos at Amazon and the business decisions he makes. Why are these guys, these billionaires, trying to charge even more money? Because they want to make even more money. It'd be nice as the consumer... If uh, you didn't have to worry about the money and you could get these products for dirt cheap, but that's not really how business works. 
And so for college football, we would love if it was just about the football and about the amateur status and this and that, but these schools want to make as much money as they can, and there is a lot of money to be made in college football. You know, we've been talking a lot about money lately with Live Golf. And uh, Jay Billis always has, he has the phrase that if you ever wonder why things are the way they are, it's because of lawyers. They either avoid a lawsuit or because there was a lawsuit in the past. Why do they need to warn you that your coffee is hot? Because one time in the past, somebody burnt themselves and was able to sue, I think it was McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts, whoever it was. So now you need to be warned that the hot coffee you're ordering is actually going to be hot. Because of lawyers. But I would also say more accurately, when we wonder why things are the way they are, it's probably because of money. And I've said this going back about a week ago, that maybe years ago we would try to hide that idea that everything revolved around money. Now we don't really care. It's just out in the open. Decades ago, maybe it was a little more shameful. You didn't want other people to know that you were doing something just simply because of the money. Now it's like, yeah, who cares? And you could explain it away with, well, just because they're paying me more. Charles Barkley will go to the Live Golf Tour. Maybe leave TNT. Why? Because they're paying him more. And we all get that. We understand. So for college football, why is this happening? Why are all these changes coming? Well, the players want to get paid, hence name, image, likeness. And the schools want to make even more money, hence why they're all moving around and joining other conferences. And that's where the disconnect comes in, much like everything else. You complain, why are the prices so high at this store or this restaurant or at this baseball game? They just want to make more money. And like any consumer, we wish things were less expensive. As a college football fan, you don't care about the money. You don't care how much money Clemson football program makes. You just want to be entertained. You want them to win on Saturdays, and you want them to do well. You're not balancing their checkbook or looking at the finances. But for these schools, that's what they're up against. And when you have the money being made, and especially like what the SEC is bringing in, where they're doubling the ACC, yeah, the ACC is going to want to be like the SEC as well. College football wants to become like the NFL because of its popularity and how much money the NFL makes. And then once college football continues to move in that direction, it becomes an arms race amongst the conferences where now the Big Ten wants to be like the SEC because they make more money than anybody. And the ACC wants to catch up because, well, the SEC and the Big Ten make a lot more money than them. And then the Big 12 and the Pac-12 want to catch up because they're getting lapped. The Pac-12 is almost going bankrupt. They need to make more money like the other conferences. It's like when you were growing up and you were trying to find your space in school and there was like a popular kid in high school and you thought, I'm going to be just like him. And everybody seems to like this guy. I'm going to wear a leather jacket and slick my hair back as well. Maybe if you were going to school during a certain decade way back when. But you want to be like uh, the other successful people. You want to try to do whatever is working for them to try to be just as successful. College football is trying to be like the NFL. And then within college football, these conferences are trying to be like one another as well. And as fans, we don't really care about the money. It's the same thing with your favorite professional sports team. You always say, why don't you just pay the guy? Like Freddie Freeman, if you're a Braves fan. Because it's not your money, right? You don't care. Just pay him what he's asking for. Don't let him leave. Fans may be a little more emotional. Don't leave the, uh, the ACC and all the tradition we've built. But for those making the decisions, it's a business decision. They don't care so much about the tradition. They want to make the money. They don't care so much that Freddie Freeman may be the most popular guy. They're not going to go any further on what they're willing to offer or budget for their first baseman. College football is becoming a lot like professional sports in that aspect that it is all about the money, and that there's this disconnect between us fans who don't care about the financial side of the sport. We just want to be entertained, and we want our old tradition. We don't like changes. We want those same rivalries, and we want college football to never change the way it was and to keep that innocence and to be all about the community and going on road trips and kids that are working hard to get to the NFLs for their big payday. But these college kids, they want to get some of this money. 
These schools and conferences want to make sure they're making as much money as they can. There's a lot of money to go around, and everybody wants a piece in college football, really like anything else. At our root, we're all pretty greedy when it comes to the money that we all want in everything that we do. You know, Jim Phillips spoke yesterday at the ACC Media Days, and I don't know if it instilled a lot of faith in Jim Phillips as a leader of the ACC here moving forward. A couple of things that stood out. He said yesterday that as a conference, we're doing just as well as the other conferences, except when it comes to revenue. That's a pretty big deal. That is the biggest deal. You could have the greatest restaurant in the world. If you're not making as much money as the other restaurants, what good are you? You could say, hey, we got the best menu. We have the best cooks. We have the best ambiance. Okay, well, let me look at your books. How come the other businesses are putting you out of business? How come your competitors are doing a lot better of a job than you? Something must be wrong. You must not be doing something right. You're not keeping up, and eventually you're going to go away. That's the most important part. You can stand up there and say, hey, we're doing everything just as good, but we're making a lot less money. Well, again, money's what makes the world go around. And money is what's going to hurt the ACC in the long run if they can't keep up with those other conferences. Jim Phillips also made a comment yesterday about, um, you know, if we just focus on basketball and football, well, that's going to get us in trouble. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But his idea was, like, don't forget about all these other sports. Why are we just focusing on football and basketball? Well, because, again, those are the most popular sports that bring in the most money. Football drives everything. And if you want to pay attention to those other sports, you have to do a good enough job in football to be able to finance those other sports. But it reminds me a lot of the Pac-12 and Larry Scott when he was running the Pac-12 and essentially ran them into the ground. Jim Phillips was hired just a year ago, hired at a tough spot for the ACC. Things have only gotten harder in his first 12 months on the job now. And the ACC, they're in that purgatory level here where we don't know what direction they're going to go in. We don't know what's going to happen, who's going to leave, when it may happen, what the future of the ACC could hold. But I've said it about these guys in college football, and really, whenever we talk about these things in all sports, that you need that visionary. You can't react. You can't wait for the bad news and then react to it. You've got to be ahead of the game. And you need some sort of visionary that can see that future, and I don't know if that's Jim Phillips. It reminds me a lot of Larry Scott with the Pac-12. Where Larry Scott and the Pac-12, they were more concerned about the Olympic sports. They weren't as concerned about trying to make as much money as they can. They made some dumb decisions along the way that led to them making the least amount of money. Sure, they were doing a good job everywhere else. Olympic sports were the best. Their academics are really good. They weren't making enough money. They were lagging behind in revenue. And that visionary idea as well, that Larry Scott, the Pac-12, they were never ahead of the curve. They were always falling behind. They had the worst TV deal of anybody. Right When the TV, when the SEC network became a big deal, and even the ACC network has done a pretty good job now, and the Big Ten network gets more viewers than anybody, and the Pac-12 botched that whole thing years ago. Yesterday, Jim Phillips seemed to give off a lot of old ideas, not talking about how eh, money's not the most important thing and why are we only focusing on football and basketball. This is in the 1980s. It's all about football now, and it's all about making that money. The SEC and the Big Ten are pulling away from everybody, and the ACC needs to catch up. I don't know if Jim Phillips right now is the guy that can lead them there, is that visionary that could come up with some unique ideas to get them to that next level. I also found what was interesting was Dabo yesterday. I read you the quotes yesterday on the show, but to uh, paraphrase again, when he was talking about Clemson, he was saying, right, it doesn't matter what the ACC does, what the future of college football holds. We're, Clemson's Clemson. We'll be fine in 10 years and 20 years and 50 years. He even made a comment about how it's not about the league. Guys don't come to Clemson because of the ACC. They come here because of Clemson. And looking back, I found those comments interesting as I was digesting everything from yesterday. Because, as I said, 
about a week ago. I think the ACC views Clemson as how like the PGA Tour views Rory McIlroy. That they love that Rory is out there standing up for them. The ACC would love if Clemson came out and gave support for the conference. They really haven't done that. Instead, when Dabo was talking about it this week, he was saying, eh, it doesn't really matter which, what league we're in, we're Clemson. We're going to be just fine. Guys don't come here because of the ACC. Are you kidding? They come here because of Clemson. It doesn't matter where we're playing. As opposed to coming out and saying something more positive towards the conference. But they love where they are. They're not looking to move. The ACC's been great. Dabo's realistic. He knows what the future holds. And he's even alluded to that this week. That he said, we all know what the future of college football looks like. We just don't know when that's going to be. And I found that interesting because in the past, I think Dabo's always said the right things and has supported his own conference. And now, the talk, almost like a man that, that knows what's coming down the road, that eventually you're going to have to make some sort of move. And it doesn't matter where they wind up, what happens to the ACC, Clemson will always be fine. But it's a lot like if you were in a relationship and you were out at a party talking to somebody and your significant other was standing next to you and you said something along the lines of like, ah, it doesn't matter who I marry, I'll be fine. I don't know if she would appreciate that you, you said something like that as opposed to talking about her specifically. Right, when you're talking in vague terms, like, yeah, it doesn't matter what conference we're in. We'll be just fine. As opposed to Jim Phillips sitting there probably wishing he said something more glowing about the ACC. If you're talking to somebody while you're in a relationship about vague general terms about your future relationships and not being specific about the person you're currently in a relationship with, I don't think that significant other would take that too kindly. And Dabo kind of gave that off yesterday where Clemson knows where their future lies and long-term, probably not in the ACC. Dabo also was talking about um, his quarterback yesterday. He went on Sirius XM. Here's what Dabo had to say about DJ on uh, Sirius Radio yesterday. You know, my quarterback, and you mentioned him. I mean, this is a this dude's a freak, yeah. you know, and, and people talk about him like he's some slap dick from East Boga, <laughs> right. you know, community college. And, and this guy can play the game at the highest level. He's going to play the game at the highest level. And he wasn't great last year, you know. He was awesome as a freshman. Yeah. He was awesome his whole career in high school. He's a winner. He's got all the tools, all the intangibles. He, but he is better because of what he wow. went through. He has, he's had a lot of challenges. And then all of a sudden, we got three different centers. We got six OL. One's a true freshman, true freshman running back. We have to end up starting true freshman. All of our receivers are out. Mm-hmm. Well, now he tries to do too much. He loses his confidence. First time in his life, life. he's had to deal with some criticism. This guy ain't ever been criticized. Yeah. He's, been the, he's been the goat his life. And now all of a sudden, he's, you know, he's got milk bone underwear on, and they're, they're chomping at him yeah. everywhere he goes. That is a great sound clip from Dabo. Now, one little critique, and it has nothing to do with Dabo. It's something that we're all guilty of, talking about he's been the GOAT his whole life. right? I hate how we just throw that term around now. How can you already say, who is calling DJ already the greatest of all time? What, the greatest high school quarterback of all time? The greatest recruit? Greatest freshman replacement for a guy who has COVID? When were we ever using that term? We use that term far too freely now. There's supposed to be one guy, greatest of all time, one guy in each area, and we just throw that term around for everybody. It's not a Dabo thing. That's a us thing. I may be guilty of it at times as well, but we use that term far too freely now. It's supposed to be the greatest of all time. People have a conversation like, who are the goats of the NBA? It's not supposed to be a 10-person conversation. You're talking about the greatest of all time. You want to talk about all-time greats? That's not GOAT. GOAT is simply greatest of all time. That's what it stands for. Anyways, I digress. We always try to break apart the English language around here and the uh, latest phrases in our vernacular. But getting back to what Dabo is actually trying to drive at with his quarterback – Look, he brings up fair points. And it's also the idea of what I said with Baker and even Spencer Rattler, that when you're humbled for the first time, 
that could be a big turnaround. When you are used to being the bee's knees your whole life, and then you get knocked down, and you have to get back up and dust yourself off, and you realize you still have a lot more to learn, or you're maybe not as good as you thought you were, everybody was telling you, you get that wake-up call, that could be a big change. My issue is that I still don't buy into DJ this year. And maybe it's because I've seen a lot more from these other quarterbacks than I have DJ, at least when you look back at last year. The other quarterbacks have at least shown me something. And that's why I think the ACC is really interesting this year, especially the Atlantic Division. That maybe things are going to be a little bit tighter for Clemson than than they are used to. You look at the rest of the ACC. Every quarterback is returning in the uh, Atlantic Division. And when you look at some of those other quarterbacks, I mean, Wake Forest had the best offense in the conference last year. Their quarterback comes back. Louisville has a fifth-year quarterback, Malik Cunningham, who people were really high on before. He could be intriguing. Then you have NC State with Devin Leary, who went for 35-5 and last year. Boston College, who I think is more of a sleeper team because I really like their quarterback. He's one of the better guys, too, could be in the NFL next year. That's in the Atlantic Division. Then you get to DJ, where those other guys outplayed DJ in the past. So not only are you expecting more from DJ, but so much so that he's got to pass a few guys in his own division. And across the way in the Coastal, you have Pittsburgh with Keaton Slovis could be intriguing. You have Brennan Armstrong at Virginia. You have Tyler Van Dyke at Miami. I think there's a great class of quarterbacks in college football this year, especially in the ACC, which makes it very intriguing. What I also find interesting about the ACC this year is that Clemson has been the king of the conference for the last, what, eight years, close to a decade? And a lot of people are doubting them this year. And I understand why. I have concerns. Wake Forest was just in the conference championship game last year. Nobody expects much from them this year. And NC State had a very under-the-radar season last year. Same idea. No one's really expecting much from them. Meanwhile, Miami is the new flavor of the month, a lot like UNC when Mac Brown arrived a few years ago, and UNC never really followed through. But the ACC is intriguing to me because if you're not a Clemson fan, if you ask an average college football fan who's going to win the Atlantic, you probably get a lot of different answers. Maybe most people would just refer back to Clemson because of their dominance. But a lot of football fans are also very skeptical of Clemson. A lot of people probably don't trust NC State, and you probably think Wake Forest won't be quite as good this year. That Atlantic division could be really interesting because of the quarterbacks and because of some of the questions for these teams as well. When we come back, we look at the Big Ten. We've been previewing a different Power Five conference on the show each day this week. And we've made our way from the Pac-12 to the Big 12 to yesterday the ACC, tomorrow the SEC, but today the Big Ten. I'll let you know who will win the conference, who will finish where, and we'll also get to the biggest storylines in the Big Ten this year as well. The more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, we preview the Big Ten as I lay out my predictions for each team in the conference this year. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Big breaking news in the NFL world for me and Rappaport, who said that uh, Kyler Murray will get a five-year big money extension with the Arizona Cardinals. So he gets what he wants after all. 
You know, I was just talking last segment about money. Everybody wants more money. We're all greedy, and it's all about money these days. It's another thing in the NFL as well, all professional sports. But in regards to, like, Kyler Murray, I don't know what's uh, been done already that's deserving some sort of big-time contract. He has one year left on the deal, his original rookie contract, then had a team option, so he had two years left of Kyler Murray. Hasn't won a playoff game yet in his three years. The one time they got there, played terribly. was embarrassing. Pulled himself out of the game in the fourth quarter. Didn't want to go out there. And then was demanding money in the offseason. His team has gotten worse all three years as the year's gone on. A lot of that may fall on Cliff Kingsbury, but, hey, you're also the franchise quarterback. You have to take some responsibility as well. Plus, maybe concerns about his size and his long-term health. I don't know. But I would say, like, if you want a big – and, look, he got it. It worked out. So, good for Kyler. But when you're demanding some sort of big five-year, big-time contract, i, I got to see more if I'm the Arizona Cardinals. I think part of the issue, too, is that they extended the GM and the head coach this offseason already and not the quarterback. And so that makes it look like you put all the blame on Kyler Murray, where I think it should be more like uh, they're all kind of in it together. So if you are going to give those other guys, if what they've done so far, if what Cliff Kingsbury has done already warrants an extension, then, yeah, I guess Kyler Murray deserves one as well. Don't have the money figures yet, but you imagine it'll be big. And uh, I'll be honest, I mean, there were reports about a holdout and everything, but I'm surprised. I didn't think the Cardinals were going to do it this offseason. I thought they were going to wait and see. But Kyler Murray gets exactly what he was hoping for with a five-year extension that ties him to Arizona for six more years. We'll see what the money is on that, but you imagine it's going to be pretty large. I'm sure it'll be towards the tops in the league. Hey, every day this week we've been previewing a Power 5 conference. Tomorrow we wrap it up with the SEC. Today, we have to do the Big Ten. I'll let you know the biggest storylines in the Big Ten coming up, but let me give you my predictions of how the West and the East divisions will finish up this year. It's time to look at the Big Ten. All right, let's look at the Big Ten. We'll start in the West, where it maybe isn't as interesting to most. And let's work our way from seven up to one. I think Illinois finishes in last place in the West. Last year was a pretty good first year for Burt Bielema. He had three upsets. He also had three close wins. So when you get upsets and when you have some close wins, that could be a sign of a little overachieving. They went 5-7 and seven in his first year, almost made a bowl game. Could be better this year in year two. They bring in Tommy DeVito, the transfer quarterback from Syracuse. But they also draw Michigan and Michigan State in those cross-division games. I think Illinois finishes in last. Uh, they're still building that program right now. I mean, it was in shambles when Bielema got there. I think Northwestern finishes right ahead of them. Now, last year, Northwestern were a bit behind the eight ball, much like Stanford and Duke in their conferences. I've laid this out on the show before, but with every player getting an extra year because of COVID, teams are a lot more experienced and older and had more veterans last year. However, Stanford had the fewest returning starters in their conference. Northwestern had the fewest in the Big Ten. Duke had the fewest in the ACC because those are great academic schools that guys weren't looking to hang around for another year of football. So while their competitors were able to take advantage of that COVID year, Northwestern could not. They were losing their guys no matter what. So, suddenly, all the other teams they were facing were more experienced, had more starters back, were a little bit older, really made it hard on Northwestern. This year, it's a little bit different. 
They get the second most starters back in the Big Ten this year. So the tables have turned a little bit for Northwestern. Of course, Ryan Holinsky is supposed to be the quarterback. However, they do have the third toughest schedule in the Big Ten this year. They have to face Ohio State and Penn State in the cross-division matchups. So I think Northwestern will be better than they were last year. And I know they've done a good job under Pat Fitzgerald, but this is still is not some sort of elite football program. They have a tough schedule this year. I put them in sixth place. Purdue I have finishing in fifth. They benefited from the weakest schedule in the conference last year. But credit to them, they were also giant killers. They knocked off a couple of top teams in the country. This past offseason, though, they lost their best player on offense, their best player on defense. I think Aiden O'Connor, their quarterback who's coming back, I think he's a little underrated. And they have 14 starters back in total. They have a good coach. So I don't know if they'll pull off those upsets like they did last year, but Purdue will be pretty decent as well. However, I still put them in fifth. Then we get to the top four in the West. I think Nebraska finishes in fourth. I think they'll be one of the most improved teams this year, maybe in all of college football. Every loss last year was by single digits, and six of those losses were against teams ranked in the top 20, and they were competitive in all of those games. This offseason, they then added a quarterback that transferred from Texas. They added a wide receiver that transferred from LSU. You have Scott Frost coaching for his job. You have the third easiest schedule in the Big Ten this year. I think Nebraska will be much better. And remember, Michigan took some of Harbaugh's money away. How did he respond? By getting the team to the playoff for the first time. Nebraska just took some of Scott Frost's money away. How will he respond? I don't think by getting Nebraska to the playoff. But the theme of the day so far this afternoon has been money. We don't like to take pay cuts. We don't like when you come into our pockets. Even if you have a lot of money like Scott Frost does, it's also a hit to your ego. You want to prove people wrong. It drove Harbaugh to have the best year yet, and then I think he was still ticked off. He was looking to go to the NFL. We'll see how Scott Frost responds, but I think Nebraska will be a lot better this year. Finishing in third, this is where I put Wisconsin. A lot of people think Wisconsin will win the West. Maybe they will. It's usually a safe bet. But they have the fewest starters coming back in the Big Ten. They lost eight starters on defense last year. Eight of their top ten tacklers from last year's team are gone. Their top three pass catchers are gone. They have a tough schedule. Now, Graham Mertz is back at quarterback, and they have, like, their top four running backs. And we know Wisconsin, they love to run the football. They got a good coach. He's an offensive coach. So they'll still be a good team, but they lost a lot from last year's squad, and last year's team didn't even win the West. I have some questions about Mertz. He had as many interceptions as touchdowns a year ago. I put Wisconsin in third. I'm big on Minnesota this year. I put Minnesota in second, and I have Iowa winning the West once again. First on Minnesota, if you take away that COVID year, because everybody handled it differently and things were not easy in the Big Ten. Remember, they didn't want to play football at all. Then they got a late start. Schedule was all jumbled up. They had to shut things down then ramp it back up to start a season. It was awkward. Some teams handled it better than others. Minnesota didn't handle it great. But if you take out that COVID year, they're 20-6 and in their last two years with P.J. Fleck. They have a four-year quarterback coming back in Tanner Morgan. They have a four-year running back. Their top five receivers from last year are all coming back. And they have the easiest schedule of any Big Ten team this year. I like Minnesota a lot. Got a good coach. Got an experienced team. All the weapons back on offense. Easy schedule. And they've been playing good football. I think Minnesota finishes in second. I was very tempted to pick them to win the West, but I'm going to go with Iowa. I think a lot of people faded on Iowa as the season went on last year. You may forget that at one point last season, they were ranked number two in the country. They had one of the best defenses in the country. 
This year, they get 14 starters back overall. They also have a third-year quarterback. Their top three targets. They have a really good coach who's been there a long time. I think Iowa will be good once again this year. They'll have one of the better defenses, certainly in the Big Ten, if not all of college football. I think Iowa wins the West for the second straight year. In the East, maybe the more intriguing conference because they actually have a national champion candidate. Rutgers will clearly finish in last. It was a reminder going through all these conferences this week that every conference and really every division has that clear bottom feeder. And right now it's probably Rutgers in the West. They have not won a conference game at home in over four years. They have the second toughest Big Ten schedule this year. They lost their top rusher, top receiver, top tackler from last year's team, and their starting quarterback right now is listed as a red shirt freshman. Rutgers could be in for a long year. I have them in last. I put Indiana in sixth. In 2020, it was that great year at Michael Penix Jr. Surprised a lot of people. Then last year, Penix got injured, and they won only two games. This year, I think they'll be somewhere in between. They won't be as good as 2020. They won't be as bad as they were last year. They were also minus 13 in turnover margin last year with a backup quarterback. That will be improved. Tom Allen, despite those struggles, did bring in a really good recruiting class. May not have a big impact on this year. But Indiana lost their top three rushers, top three pass catchers, top two tacklers, their quarterback as well. They have one of the toughest schedules in the conference. Indiana will be better than last year, but will still struggle. I put them in six. I have Michigan State finishing in fifth place in their division. I am not as high on Michigan State this year. Last season, they had their most wins in six years, but there were some red flags that came along with it. Maybe you're concerned with how they built their team by using simply just the transfer portal. Is that something that you can do year after year? But other red flags, the fact fact that they were outgained last season. They ended up finishing with, what, like a 10-2 record or something? They allowed more yards than they had, at least in Big Ten play. They also lost Kenneth Walker and three starting offensive linemen. He was the star of the team. They only have six starters back on offense. Pardon me, five starters back on offense total. And last year, they were 4-0 and in one possession games. They were 4-1 and last year as an underdog. The analytical crowd will tell you that those are not things you can count on year to year. It evens out. They were really good in close games last year. They were really good at beating better teams. Maybe we just undervalued Michigan State last year, or maybe just the stars kind of aligned. This year, they have to go to Penn State on the road, to Michigan on the road this year. I think they fall back to earth. I put them in fifth place in the East Division. I have Maryland finishing fourth in the East. Last year, they were favored in all their wins. They were the underdog in all their losses, so they did exactly what they were supposed to. They beat the teams they were supposed to. They lost against the teams they were supposed to. So they had a good year, but eh, really wasn't that impressive. The good teams win games they're not supposed to. And they win all the games they're supposed to. Maryland, they were just kind of average. Now this year, they have a conference-high 16 starters coming back, including nine on offense. They have an offensive coach. They get the quarterback back. They have their entire offensive line back. So the offense could be intriguing with Tua's brother. Uh, Maryland, I put in fourth in the east. Then we get to the top three. I'll slot Michigan third. I'm down on Michigan as well this year. I've been calling them this year's Florida. Florida made it to the SEC title game in Dan Mullen's penultimate season, which was a bit of a surprise. And they even hung in there with Alabama in the title game. And things were really good for Dan Mullen in Florida. And then there was this idea around the industry or the sport that Dan Mullen was looking to go to the NFL, parlay that success to jump to the NFL. 
There was even some talk that he felt like he was already on his way out, so he didn't really care as much anymore. Recruiting kind of tanked. Dan Mullen was talking as if he was man, a man on to bigger and better things. But those opportunities did not come, and now it's like, all right, got to go back to Florida. And they accomplished some things that they hadn't under Dan and were a bit of a surprise the year before. He had kind of one foot out the door, didn't follow through with all the recruiting, and Florida was a mess last year, and it led to his firing less than a year after getting to the SEC title game. I don't think Hardball would be fired, but Michigan, similar in the sense that they surprised a lot of people. They made it to the playoff for the first time. They beat Ohio State. It was an incredible year, probably the best you could do at Michigan. And then what did Harbaugh do? On National Signing Day, he interviewed with the Minnesota Vikings. He probably thought he was a goner. In fact, reports were he assumed he already had the job and showed up for the interview like he already had the job. And then realized during the interview, oh, wait a minute, this is a real interview. Harbaugh had a feeling like he, I'm out of here. So long, right? He let coaches leave. He lost both coordinators this offseason. And through those efforts, Michigan lost the top two quarterbacks in the state. One of them, I think, went to Oregon. Because you look at Harbaugh and thinking, like, this guy's already halfway out the door. I'm concerned about Michigan this year. Plus, they lost seven defensive starters from last year. They were led by their defense. They lost Aiden Hutchinson. They lost their top two sack leaders, their top four tacklers. They lost their running back from last year. That's Harbaugh. Run the football and play defense. That's what he's become at Michigan. I'm down on Michigan. I was uh, considering dropping them even more, but I don't think the rest of the East is all that great either. So I'll put Michigan in third. Penn State I have in second. Ohio State clearly number one. Penn State, they were number four in the country at one point last year. Then Sean Clifford got injured. They lost that game. Then they lost the next week in nine overtimes. Then they were tied with Ohio State in the second half and lost. Then they led Michigan and Michigan State in the fourth quarter and lost those games. All the Penn State's losses were by single digits. Four were against ranked teams. This year, they get Michigan State and Ohio State at home. You got a four-year quarterback. Running backs back. Four of the top five receivers are back. I like this Penn State team this year. I think they were better than the record indicated last year, and I think they'll be better this year on the football field. And no surprise, lastly, I have Ohio State winning the East, therefore matching up with Iowa in the Big Ten title game. Ohio State is one of the national championship favorites. They get 14 starters back. They averaged 46 points per game last year on offense and will probably be even better this year. They have the best quarterback in the Big Ten. They have the best wide receiving core in the Big Ten. They probably will have the best running back in the Big Ten as well. And they added Jim Knowles to be their defensive coordinator, which is a big boost because that's been their weakness, and he's a really good defensive coordinator. Ohio State is clearly the best team in the Big Ten. I think they win the conference, they go to the playoff, and they'll compete for a national championship this year. My predictions for the Big Ten this season. Iowa wins the West. Minnesota finishes in second, followed by Wisconsin. And in the East, Ohio State, the clear winner, followed by Penn State and Michigan. I'm down on Michigan and Michigan State this year compared to last season. I think Penn State bounces back. I think Nebraska bounces back. And I'm down on uh, Wisconsin a little bit as well. I think Minnesota and Iowa will also be really good this year in the West. In fact, I think the East is a lot more top-heavy with Ohio State. Michigan was just in the playoff. I think the West is a lot more interesting. I think the West overall is better. I think the West is deeper. If Purdue's the fifth best team in the West, I think that's pretty strong. They knocked off some good teams last year. It could be a tough out. I think Nebraska will be improved. I think Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa will all be competing for the title. The West has not won the Big Ten in a decade, but this year I think it's the better side of the conference. However, the East has the best team in Ohio State. When we come back, biggest storylines this year in the Big Ten. We'll continue to break down that conference. 
the Mar Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. It's Throwback Thursday. What's today? It's Thursday. Really? Feels like Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday has no feel. Monday has a feel. Friday has a feel. Sunday has a feel. I feel Tuesday and Wednesday. All right, shut up to both of you. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Been previewing a Power 5 conference each day this week. Today, looking at the Big Ten, as I gave you my prediction last last segment. If I were to give you the biggest storylines in the Big Ten this year, we've been doing top five throughout the week. Top five for the Big Ten. We'll start at number one. I think it is Ohio State to see if they truly are a national title contender, if they are one of the best teams in the country, and if C.J. Stroud will be the best quarterback in college football this year. My number two storyline would probably be the West of the Big Ten. As I said last segment, I think the West is maybe better this year. It's deeper. It's not as good at the top. They don't have an Ohio State. But I think from top to bottom, it's better than the East. However, the West has not won the Big 12, uh, the Big Ten, rather. The West has not won the Big Ten since 2012. So can they compete this year with an Ohio State? Probably not. But I do think the West overall is better than the East. Number three would be Harbaugh. I laid out my reasons why last segment. But how can Harbaugh follow up that incredible season a year ago for Michigan? You could probably ponder the same thing about Michigan State. Can they match what they achieved a year ago? I'm not so sure. Number four would be Scott Frost and his future. His job's on the line. Can he save himself at Nebraska? It's always hard to uh, fire an alum. That was a big hire at the time. They were excited about it. It hasn't worked out. Can Scott Frost finally turn around Nebraska, try to get them back to close to where they were back in the 90s? And then number five was probably James Franklin at Penn State. Now that Harbaugh had the success he did a year ago, maybe Franklin takes over as, if we did a poll, he'd probably be the most overrated coach in college football. I think certainly in the Big Ten you would consider him that. And Penn State has been disappointing the last couple of years. Started off great last year, tanked in the second half of the year. Harbaugh got a little bit of the, the, the heat off his seat a year ago, had a really good year. James Franklin's kind of on you. I mean, you got the big contract. There were rumors about him going to USC before Lincoln Riley took the job. And a lot of people were wondering, like, why? What has this guy proven? For James Franklin at Penn State, I picked them to finish second. In the East, only behind Ohio State, I think they have a much better year this year. But they kind of have to. It's been a little bit of a disappointment the last couple of years. What will Franklin do? Because I think he's taken over that mantle as the most overrated coach right now, where the results don't really match the reputation of James Franklin. I guess when you actually win games like he did at Vanderbilt, the rest is just gravy. Because nobody else can do that. And they thought, wow, this guy's really special, no matter what happens the rest of his career. Biggest storylines for the Big Ten this year. We'll preview the SEC tomorrow to wrap up our Power 5 conference breakdown of the five days this week. You can always join the conversation throughout the afternoon. You can join the conversation on the phones, 843-721-9500, by giving us a call. Let's go to the phones because Jim is with us. Jim, what's going on? How are you? Hi. Well, I'm okay. How are you? Uh I want to play catch, but I can't <laughs> talk to you that way anymore. Hey, do you remember that you go to the schoolyard and you put a box on the wall, like uh, the shape of a strike zone, and one would, guy would pitch and one guy would hit? Do you remember that? It's called Pinner. Do you remember that? No. I don't know if I'm familiar. Yeah, well, that, that's what we used to do, except my brother was better than me. 
So when he would pitch to me and I couldn't hit him, I'd throw the bat at him. You know, that would solve that. That would solve that dilemma. And then the other one you would play was you would uh, throw the ball on the stairs and and catch off the stairs. Have you ever done that? No, I don't think I've done that either. Well, the stairs in the front of your house. There's six, eight of them. We used to have concrete. Yeah. Throw the ball on there, and then you, you know, you you can throw, you can hit at different angles and everything else. I'm just letting you know all that because you know I'm a little bit older than you by a few days, and today's a special day. But am I allowed to acknowledge it or not? Yes, you can acknowledge it. It's, it's fine. <laughs> all right. Well, just listen a second, Jen. Alexa, sing "Happy Birthday." <laughs> Let's see how this works. Okay, let's do this. One, two, three, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday to you. Wow. And many more. That was pretty good. Not bad, huh? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, well, we've been waiting for an hour. We had the band here and, you know, and everything else. It's tough. You know, I live in a small place. I only have eight seats here, and I got a band here for you, okay? <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, Alexa did just a fine job instead. All right. You have a great day, and don't forget about the old pickleball. The boys are getting ready for you, okay? Hey, I look forward to it. Absolutely. Sounds good. Appreciate it, Jim, and Alexa as well for singing happy birthday. It is my birthday today, but it's like any other day. It's just a Thursday in July. It's like uh, to reference Seinfeld again, when Jerry is trying to play the dark character to make George look better on a date. And he says, all right, happy birthday, no such thing. You're just another year older. And he goes on a whole rant about thinking back to uh, the good old days. Happy birthday, there's no such thing. But thank you to Alexa for singing happy birthday. By the way, Pickleball, I saw Kirby Smart yesterday at SEC Media Days. I don't know how they got on the subject. He was talking about, and I, I'll be honest, I don't remember his answer. He was talking about which coach he would least prefer to play in Pickleball. I tell you, this sport, it is sweeping the nation. I love Pickleball. Now, it's mostly for the older generation, but you got Kirby Smart out there talking with SEC players, uh, talking about SEC coaches and who he wouldn't want to face on the pickleball court. I think you have to go, you know, you'd be surprised. You would say you don't want to play someone who's younger, but the whole idea of pickleball is that you don't have to move so much, and you get up closer to the net, and you just stand there and kind of hit the ball. You can cover all sections of the court. So you'd be surprised, right? It's, it's not necessarily a younger man's game. Now, maybe they have more energy, and you could be a little bit longer and quicker and quicker reflexes, but... I've seen some of these older folks that are pretty darn good out there. I can see Saban being pretty good at pickleball. But I don't remember who Kirby Smart said. Love a good uh, pickleball game. I was playing pickleball a couple weeks ago. There's like a high school kid there. I tell you what, if if you're that age, go out and play tennis. If you're that young, and maybe I'm still in the age range where I'm young enough that I should probably be playing tennis instead of pickleball, but I do enjoy pickleball. I was playing with this high school kid a couple weeks ago who was really good. Like, what are you doing? Go go play tennis. Why are you playing pickleball with all these 60-year-olds? Right, go play tennis with uh, kids your age. You're still young enough. You can move around. I played tennis when I was a kid. I was terrible. So that's why I had to, I had to move to pickleball. But thank you, Jim and uh, Alexa. I remember um, it's a big birthday. I'm, I'm uh, getting old. I remember back in the day when I was a kid, I asked my parents for a Red Ryder, uh, you know, 200-shot range model air rifle, and they said, no, you're going to shoot your eye out. You can't get that. And that was a big gift back in the 60s when I was growing up. And I really wish my parents would get that for my birthday and uh, never was able to get it. And then they made a movie about it. And you may watch it around Christmas about my life uh, as a kid growing up wishing I got the BB gun for my birthday way back when. They changed the story and made it about Christmas, but it was really about my birthday all those years ago. Hard getting into your 50s, let me tell you. When we come back, 
We'll talk about the NFL and my concern for all the NFL teams coming up this year. Hour two next. It's the Morning Midday Show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston however you listen to your podcast. And the podcast is also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page and find the podcast there. You can always join the conversation. charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Leave a comment there. Also, get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. You can text the show, 843-608-1734. Or you can always give us a call, 843-721-9500. Appreciate uh, Brian on Twitter, the invitation to play pickleball. We play Tuesday nights. You may have to uh, come join in. Love pickleball. A lot of fun. You know, it's almost become uh, like a cultish a bit. It's such a, it's a, such a fast, it's the fastest growing sport in the country. Everybody loves it. My mother plays all the time. She's in like a league. She played in the nutmeg games up in Connecticut and medaled. And uh, yeah, everybody loves the sport. She plays, whenever I go home, I always uh, go play. We went to go to the parks a couple weeks ago while I was home and the places are packed. Everyone's playing and. You have all the different levels. This court, it's for the beginners. This court, it's for the experts. And you hang your paddle. It's a whole thing. I like, I Googled pickleball here, and the, the New Yorker has an article from earlier this week saying, can pickleball save America? It's crazy. This sport's becoming all the rage. Drew Brees just became a co-owner of a pickleball team. It's a fun sport, though, if you haven't played it. Now, Trent, I, last time we've talked about pickleball, because it seems to come up a lot around here. As you said, you never played pickleball before. I never played pickleball, oh. Luke, but let me tell you something to everybody out there. You do not want to see the Morrow Midday Show as the doubles unit on the pickleball court. I will pick it up quick, Luke Morrow, and we will run through the Charleston area. Let That's me tell you right. that right now. Absolutely. That's right. So, Brian, appreciate the invite. <laughs> we'll come out there. We'll take everybody on. <laughs> no, I can't talk too much trash because uh... – you know, that's the thing. Like I was saying last uh, last hour, it's not necessarily like you figure out oh, if somebody's younger, they have an advantage. But the whole idea of the sport is that you don't move around much. So I would show up to the court, you know, with my mother, of course, who's obviously older than me. And some of the people are a little bit older. Maybe it's intimidating when I step on the court. And then they're the ones blasting the ball past me and everything. And it's like, oh, shoot, right? this old guy can play. So, uh, you know, I, I it's like uh, I played basketball a lot growing up. 
And in the layup lines before the game, you'd be looking down to the other end and see, like, if everyone's dunking or they touching the backboard. Like, what are we dealing with today? Well, who's on this other team? And you'd already size up the other team before the game even started. And I'm talking about, you know, in uh, high school or rec league. You're not doing scouting reports. You don't really know what the other team has until you show up to the court. And you're looking at the other end or even football. Like, how big are these guys? Are they going to be hard to tackle? Do I, am I not going to want to get tackled by them? Similar pickleball, I show up and they think, like, oh, who's this young, lanky kid? No, don't worry. I, I, I'm still just a, These people wipe the floor at me sometimes, these old people. But I can hold my own on the pickleball floor, pickleball court. Anyways, um, we're going to, you know, we've been previewing the college football top conferences in college football throughout the week. Tomorrow, we'll wrap it up at the SEC. Also, we'll look ahead to the NFL because the NFL season begins seven weeks from today, if my math is correct, week one. Kyler Murray, before we get to uh, the NFL, previewing each team. Today, we're going to look at the biggest concerns for the AFC teams. Tomorrow, we'll look at biggest concerns for NFC teams. But the big news today in the NFL is Kyler Murray's contract. I just saw this during the commercial break. That um, let me bring up the numbers once again. But two hundred and thirty-one million dollars for five years for Kyler Murray. So that's what over forty-six million a year. That's what ESPN.com reported, according to Adam Schefter. A hundred and sixty million is guaranteed. That would rank towards the top of the league, right, in terms of highest-paid quarterbacks. Almost fifty million a year for him. Yeah, he's uh, right now number two, uh, just above Deshaun Watson. Even though Deshaun Watson's contract, we have to remember, is two hundred thirty fully guaranteed. So right. uh, this one's only one hundred sixty. So basically, a quasi four-year, one hundred sixty million dollar deal, similar to what Matthew Stafford got a couple uh, last year. Mm. Would you pay Kyler Murray? About $47 million a year? Man, I don't know who else they would pay right right yeah. now. You know, if you want to start over, they've tried to start over with Josh Rosen. That didn't work. They moved on to Kyler Murray. It seemed like, Luke, they had no other option outside of Kyler. And you look at the numbers, they aren't great, but they're good enough to pay him this kind of money. I mean, if Derek Carr is making similar money to Kyler Murray, Kirk Cousins is making over, you know, 40-plus, I would assume that he would be in this range. But it does seem a little crazy with their playoff success so far. I just wonder how much Lamar Jackson's going to get paid now, quite honestly. Yeah, that's the big winner in all yeah. this. Now you get Deshaun Watson's contract. You get Kyler Murray's contract. If you're Lamar Jackson, you're sitting there thinking, hey, I've actually won a playoff game, and I have an MVP award. Kyler Murray just got this much. He's never won a playoff game. He's hasn't been an MVP. Uh, you know, for, So for Lamar, he's probably the big winner. Probably was hoping Kyler would get even more, but now you can play off of this and demand even more than Kyler Murray and try to get up towards. You can make the same case about Deshaun Watson. Right, Deshaun hasn't won an MVP. He has legal issues. Hasn't won a ton in the playoffs. If you're Lamar Jackson, you could say I, I need at least the same amount. So Lamar's kind of, Kyler Murray's a big winner, and Lamar Jackson comes out as a big winner in a lot of this as well. Looking ahead to the NFL season, we'll break down the NFC tomorrow, including the Panthers and the Falcons. But if we look at the AFC today, biggest concerns for each team in the AFC. Let's just go division by division. My biggest concern for each team for the Bills. I worry if there's too much on Josh Allen's plate. Now, look, he got them almost to the Super Bowl a year ago. Defense let him down against the Chiefs. But you look at this team, the running game has really never been great in terms of the running backs since Josh Allen has arrived, and it's not for a lack of trying. They've drafted a handful of running backs in the first four rounds, and the offensive line isn't great. So you have Josh Allen, who's an athletic quarterback. You know, it's almost um, asking too much from him because of what he's capable of. Because he is mobile, because he can move around, between the offensive line and the running backs, you're asking a lot from Josh Allen. And even the wide receivers, Stephon Diggs is really good, but there's not a, a, not a ton of uh, big play guys on that offense. For the Patriots, you could say the secondary would be a concern. Stephon Gilmore 
Well, they already lost. And then Jackson left them as well. So, you know, they've lost two good defensive backs here the last couple of years. But my biggest concern for New England is the coaches. And we've talked about this throughout the offseason. You know, when you have a young quarterback in Mac Jones, you have to give him the best coaching possible. And instead, it's going to be Matt Patricia, Joe Judge, who have not worked on the offensive side of the football, that are going to be the offensive coordinator and quarterback coach, apparently, and then Bill Belichick playing a role in that as well. And my concern would be, does that stunt the growth of your young quarterback, Mac Jones? Now, Belichick always deserves the benefit of the doubt. So if he's going to call the offense, I'll wait and see. There's always been the idea that he was calling the offense about 13 years ago after Josh McDaniels left the first time. And Bill O'Brien was promoted, but if you go back and you look, they didn't have an official offensive coordinator. It took until like year three that Bill O'Brien finally earned the title. And the belief was Belichick was calling the offense then with Tom Brady, and the team did pretty well. So maybe they'll be just fine. But even so, I would like a quarterback coach, right? Even if Belichick's going to run the offense, bring in a guy to be the quarterback coach who's worked with quarterbacks. Bring in a guy to be the offensive coordinator, even if it's just in title, who has worked on offense. Instead of Patricia, a failed you know, defensive guy, and Joe Judge, a failed head coach who's a special teams guy for a quarterback in his second year, Mac Jones, not to mention the lack of weapons he has on offense. So my concern for New England is, are you doing the best you can for your young quarterback? I've said the same thing about Justin Fields in Chicago. I don't think they're setting him up to succeed either. I think the Patriots are making it harder on Mac Jones. For the Dolphins, the biggest concern is Tua. Now, along with that would also be the offensive line doesn't help. They had the worst uh, pass protection last year, but they did address the offensive line this offseason. The biggest issue is Tua. I think they have filled out the roster everywhere else where the quarterback is that one missing piece. Can Tua step up? We'll find out this year. If not, he'll probably be replaced. If Tua plays well enough, Miami could be a playoff team this year. But Tua and then the offensive line goes hand-in-hand when you have that young quarterback. Can they protect him as well? That'll make his job easier. That's the big concern and question for Miami. And for the Jets, the biggest concern for the Jets is the defense. They have a young quarterback that needs to prove himself, but you know what could help a young quarterback is having a really good defense. In fact, the last time the Jets were actually good, they had a young quarterback in Mark Sanchez, and they had a top defense in the league. Makes it a lot easier on a young quarterback. Zach Wilson, was he great last year? No. Did he get a ton of help? Not really, especially not from the defense. In fact, the defense last year allowed the most points in the league. They also allowed more points last year than any other year in Jets history, and that's on a per-game average. I know we added a 17th game last year. That's not why. If we went just on a per-game average, they allowed 30 points per game last year, shattered the previous record. The Jets historically have usually had a pretty good defense. You know, the sack exchange, and then, of course, with Rex Ryan, their defense is horrendous. And the kicker is they hired Robert Sala, who's a defensive coach. And yet he came in, and the defense got worse. And Salah was not calling the defense last year. That's another concern I have. They brought you in to be the defensive guy. Why aren't you running the defense? They didn't bring you in because you're some sort of great head coach. We've never seen you as a head coach before. They didn't bring you in because of your great speeches in the locker room. They can find somebody else to do that. They brought you in because of your defensive expertise. And yet he passed off the defensive duties last year, and they had the worst defense in the league. To help out Zach Wilson, why don't you keep the games a little lower scoring, Uh, Keep uh, your defense off the field. Allow your team to stay in it so that Zach Wilson doesn't take so many chances. My biggest concern for the Jets, they made a lot of moves this offseason, but that defense really needs to improve. AFC North, biggest concern for the Bengals is just following up last year. We've seen teams get to the Super Bowl and then struggle to get back, mostly in the NFC. But whether it was 
the uh, uh, yeah the Eagles with uh, Nick Foles and Carson Wentz, the Falcons, the Panthers when they went those back to back years, they haven't been the same since. In fact, I don't, uh, the, the Panthers haven't had a winning season since I don't believe, and uh, the Falcons have gotten worse each year since. So simply just following up from last year's success of reaching the Super Bowl, which seems like a bit of a cop-out. Other concerns for Cincinnati would be the offensive line, but they did address that this offseason. We'll see how much better it is this year. And then also, I mean, they lost their tight end, which doesn't seem like a big thing. But this Bengals team was just in the Super Bowl last year, and uh, they didn't really lose a lot of pieces in the year since. So maybe it's nitpicking, but... I would say losing the tight end and uh, the fact that it's just hard to get back to the Super Bowl like they did last year. For the Ravens, it'd be wide receivers would be my biggest concern. And maybe that shouldn't be a concern with the Ravens because of the offense they run. But they really don't have much on the outside. You got rid of Hollywood Brown, and now uh, Rashad Bateman's your number one receiver, and he's not really a number one. And you have Lamar Jackson, who there's questions about his throwing ability or the pass offense to begin with, and he doesn't have a lot of great options uh, that he's throwing the football to. Now it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg. Right, do the Ravens, are they not giving him enough at the wide receiver position or because the offense they run that allows Lamar to be successful, guys like Hollywood Brown don't want to play there and receivers don't want to come there because they're not the focal point. But for the Ravens, we've seen once you get to the playoffs, you got to make some plays through the air. I would be concerned about the wide receiving core. For the Browns' biggest concern is just simply Deshaun's availability. If you were to tell me Deshaun's not going to be suspended at all, yeah, then we're talking about the Browns as a potential team that could win the AFC. You tell me he's going to be out for the year, I don't think the Browns are a playoff team. Or you tell me Deshaun's going to miss half the season. All right, I would say they don't win the division, but they could be a wild-card team, and Deshaun would be playing by then. Maybe they make some noise in the playoffs. So it simply comes down to his availability. What are we going to get in terms of Deshaun's suspension? And along those lines, don't forget, when Tom Brady, and we went through um, the flate gate, he did something similar to what Deshaun was threatening this week about you know taking the NFL to court over all this. And for Tom Brady, it didn't, didn't work, but it did push off that suspension. He didn't serve the suspension until the next year. So for Deshaun, maybe you try some sort of appeal process or you put it in the, the courts that it pushes it off a year. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know if that's an option. I don't know if that's a possibility. I don't know if this is different from Tom Brady. But maybe you find a way to take that suspension next year instead of this year. Deshaun's availability is the biggest question and concern for the Browns. And when it comes to the Steelers, the biggest concern is, of course, the quarterback. Mitch Trubisky, Kenny Pickett as a rookie, I don't think that's good enough. Now, they do have some good pieces around them. The wide receivers are always good for Pittsburgh. You got Najee Harris in the backfield. But last year, Pittsburgh ranked second last, second to last, second worst in pass protection. Not great for a quarterback. Whether that's Trubisky or you throw in a rookie, Kenny Pickett, behind the second worst pass protecting offensive line. Doesn't help. AFC South, biggest concern for these teams for the Titans I think the defense will be really good this year. It was a top-five defense last year. They added some pieces in the offseason. My concern is the offense. You lose A.J. Brown. We'll see about Derrick Henry and his health after he got injured last year. And then Ryan Tannehill. And there's a reason why they went out and drafted a quarterback. There's a reason why Tannehill had to talk to uh, somebody this offseason about the way last year ended. He had three interceptions in that playoff game. He was lousy. He's not good enough to take you where you want to go. So between the quarterback, losing A.J. Brown, there's no star receiver, and then Derrick Henry... Maybe it's like LeBron James, the one injury started at all, where LeBron now has been injured almost every year in L.A. Derrick Henry, he's almost 30. He's lost a lot of tread on those tires. Just got injured for the first time. Is this the start of a new trend? Christian McCaffrey, similar. Right, McCaffrey has not been healthy for two years straight. And Derrick Henry, 
is the one that makes that team go. For the Colts, the concern is wide receivers. You bring in Matt Ryan, how much does he have left? We'll find out. But you know what would help? Some good guys to throw to. you got a great running back in the backfield. That's going to help Matt Ryan. But also, it would be beneficial to have some good targets to throw to. We've been talking about this throughout the offseason. But for the Colts, the biggest concern is that wide receiver position. Good wide receivers can help you squeeze a little bit more out of a 39-year-old Matt Ryan. But if you give me a 39-year-old Matt Ryan and not a lot of great weapons on the outside, it's not going to work out quite as well as it could. Jonathan Taylor, of course, is a huge help, but you can't run it all game. At a certain point, you've got to make some plays. If you're trailing in the second half, you've got to make some throws. Can Matt Ryan get that done, especially with this wide receiving core? For the Jaguars, biggest concern this year, I mean, pick your poison. I'll say defense. They address the offense this offseason. You get ETN coming back. You bring in Doug Peterson. They signed a lot of wide receivers. But they had a bottom five defense last year. They were last in forced turnovers last year. That could help a young quarterback. Right? Field position. Get your offense back on the field. Even try to get some points from the turnovers directly. And the Jaguars' defense was also last in the league last year in terms of time spent on the field. So they were not getting turnovers. They were not getting off the field. What could help Trevor Lawrence? Give him some short fields and keep him on the field instead of on the sideline. Let him get comfortable out there. Don't force him to always play from behind. For the Jaguars, the biggest concern, probably the defense. And for the Texans, biggest concern, eh, everything. I don't know, lack of talent. The only thing I like about the Texans is Davis Mills is sneakily, sneakily, is that a word? He's sneaky. He could be sneaky good. Everything else on the Texans, a bit of a disaster. Lastly, AFC West, biggest concerns for the Chiefs. You can't stop Mahomes if you're the other team, but you can try to play keep away. Now, the analytics suggests to beat Patrick Mahomes, you got to win in a shootout instead of trying to take air out of the football. But nonetheless, there's that old school of, of thought that in order to beat a talented quarterback, just keep the ball out of their hands, keep them on the sideline. And the problem was, for the Chiefs last year, they had the worst run-stop percentage in the NFL. So they essentially had the worst run defense in the league. So, again, how can you try to slow down Mahomes? Well, just keep him on the sideline. You could run the football against the Chiefs last year. The Chiefs have to do a better job stopping the run this year. For the Broncos, my biggest concern is their pass rush. Once they got rid of Von Miller last year, their pass rush disappeared. They did not have a single pass rusher in the top 77 in the NFL last year on win rate. How often do they win when they're lined up against that offensive lineman trying to get after the quarterback? They did not have anybody in the top 77. They were last in the NFL in pass rush last year, despite having a defensive head coach. Now they have an offensive head coach. You lose Vic Fangio, who's a really good defensive coach, and yet they were still last in pass rush last year. And in this division, that's big because you're going up against Mahomes and you're going up against Herbert and even Derek Carr. you got to be able to get after the quarterback. The Broncos were the worst team in the league last year getting after the quarterback. I don't know if it will be much better this year. For the Chargers, biggest concern, Brandon Staley, because the roster is really good. I mean, maybe it's Justin Herbert, but I like Herbert. You could say he hasn't proven himself yet. Had a chance to go beat the Raiders last year to get into the playoffs. They could not. Hasn't been in the playoffs yet. But I don't put that as much on Herbert. Last year, Brandon Staley took a lot of the blame, especially for that loss against the Raiders. He's very analytical, and sometimes that doesn't always work out. He's also just a young coach. He's still in his 30s. Hasn't been in the NFL that long. He's a defensive coach. He's a first-time head coach. And I think if the Chargers don't make the playoffs this year, he loses his job. So Staley has the most to prove with the Chargers, and I think it falls on him this year because that team is good. So it got Anthony Lynn fired before him. The Chargers have always had talent in recent years. They just can never put it together. And lastly, the Raiders. Biggest concern for Las Vegas is the offensive line. You bring in Devontae Adams. You have Josh McDaniels. Obviously, Carr is still there. 
So you got pieces on offense. Josh Jacobs, Darren Waller, it's exciting. But you got to be able to give your quarterback enough time to make plays. The Raiders last year were bottom 12 in both pass blocking and run blocking. They didn't do anything good. They had a, one of the worst offensive lines in the league. You just lost Incognito, retired. They lost a couple other guys in the offseason. And you have some good pass rushers in this division. Between the Chargers and the Chiefs, right, you could get uh, tested. So the Raiders, it's exciting what they have on paper. I've compared it to a lesser version of those 16-0 and Patriots. I'm not telling you the Raiders are going to set offensive records. right? But you have your Hunter Renfros, like uh, your Wes Welker, and you have Devontae Adams, who could be like your Randy Moss, and you have Darren Waller, who could be like your uh, Aaron Hernandez or Rob Gronkowski, and you have your Josh McDaniels, who called the plays for New England, and now calling the plays for Las Vegas. Carr, obviously, is no Tom Brady. It's New England very light. I'm not telling you they're going to be the Patriots from 15 years ago. But you have the pieces there, what McDaniels likes to do. The problem is you got to give your quarterback time to be able to make the plays. Biggest concern for each team in the AFC. Tomorrow we'll look at the NFC, which, of course, includes the Panthers and the Falcons, as we are now seven weeks out from the start of the NFL season. When we come back, the SEC media days continue. We talked about this yesterday, so I want to circle back to it and actually you know, put it on paper, get to a list. Has Shane Beamer already become the most likable coach in the SEC? We'll get to that next. It's more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Overhead Door Company, the original garage door company, serving you for over 90 years. Call 843-767-0028 or overheaddoorco.com. Overhead Door Company of Charleston, proud to open Hour 2 of the Morrow Midday Show. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Has Shane Beamer already become the most likable coach in the SEC? We'll get to that here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Another invitation has come in for pickleball. I'm going to be the busiest guy around here just playing pickleball with everybody. So, Trent, you better uh, pick up a paddle, learn the sport, because we've got all sorts of pickleball to be played. we got money to make, Luke Morrow. <laughs> I'm, go- I'm going out there making some money. Taking- we're going to make this a young man's game. Hate to break it to everybody, but we're taking this game. It's going to be a young man's game. I see what you're doing. See, Trent's setting you up. Ah, I've never played pickleball before, <laughs> and then we're going to hustle you out there. Bingo. Why don't we put a little money on the line? We're a couple of beginners. Yeah. Uh, we'll play you for some cash, and then we'll wipe the floor with you. Ten bucks a match. What <laughs> are we doing? We'll play ten. How are we, how we feeling? That's right. We'll clean up on these pickleball courts. <laughs> And uh, my mother also said that pickleball's in schools now. They're playing pickleball in schools. They're going to have high, a high school league, I imagine, I'm sure, at some point, where you're playing, you could go play pickleball in high school, and then maybe you could get a scholarship. It's crazy. It really is crazy because, I don't know, refresh my memory. I don't think we've had a sport that just suddenly becomes new. Like, basketball goes back to 1891. Baseball is, I think, 1861, right? Football goes back over 100 years. Like, what's the last new sport that we truly had 
infiltrate our sports world. Now, pickleball, of course, is not on the level of those sports. But in terms of just playing with your friends, the average person at home, I mean, everyone's playing. They're building courts everywhere. I read an article a few months ago about how Charleston's become, like, the number one place for pickleball. It's crazy. And I enjoy the sport, but I also get just a kick out of, like, as I said, it's almost like cultish, the way this whole thing's taken off, and everybody, they love it. You play pickleball. You love your pickleball. You're very passionate about it. Uh, fascinating to me, but I do enjoy playing the game. Hey, has Shane Beamer already become the most likable coach in the SEC? Now, look, it's not going to necessarily help you win games on Saturday. But I said this yesterday in regards to Nick Saban. I think smart coaches realize that the media doesn't have to be an enemy. The media could be your friend. They could be a tool. And I think Shane Beamer does a really good job with the media and then even social media and putting himself out there. That, that That's good. That plays well. It plays well for the media because then they like the guy and you're not as prone to maybe rip somebody who you enjoy or you get to know personally. Obviously, it helps in recruiting when you watch these videos online and everything. It helps with publicity for the program. I'm a media member. I've worked around a lot of programs, right? So I know a lot of coaches, they look at you, and if you're in the media, as like the enemy, and they're going to battle. I think Shane Beamer is really smart, and maybe it's because he's the son of a coach. But from day one, he's always seen that as an opportunity an opportunity to promote yourself, your program, the things you do well. You don't have to go up there and spar with the media. Go up there and use them to your advantage to show how likable you are, how good of a guy. Right? It wins fans over. Like Mike Tomlin, is fan. I'm not even a Steeler. I love Mike Tomlin because he's the best sound. He gets up to the podium. I love listening to his press conferences. I don't care about the Steelers, but I listen to that guy all day, and he seems like somebody I would love to hang out with. So Shane Beamer does a really good job with the media, with social media. Anytime he's out there in the spotlight, he's been on this show a couple of times, really down to earth, just seems like a good guy. Now, as I said yesterday in the show, I did not like the hire. And this is not me necessarily saying that I was wrong just yet because we don't know if things are going to work out. Everyone's very high on the Gamecocks right now and Shane Beamer. But, hey, if they go 4-8 and eight this year, I think the tune will change a little bit. right? So you still got to go out there and win games. But so far, things have gone better than I anticipated, and so far Shane Beamer's done a better job just as a head coach in the SEC handling himself better than I anticipated. A Gamecock fan reached out to me yesterday when we were talking about it. He said, hey, I wanted Jamie Chadwell as well. I did not want – Shane Beamer was not my number one guy. But I have to admit, as you have, that he has knocked it out of the park so far. He gets it as far as creating a culture and relating to the kids. If he can get the offense fixed, the moon is the limit. This is the first football coach I have felt like is one of us. Yeah, which was the whole thing about bringing him back to South Carolina. So all this brings me to the question of, is he the most likable coach in the SEC? If you're a Clemson fan, you would say, of course not. Although I think it's even kind of hard to hate him right now as even a Clemson fan. If you're a Gamecock fan, you'd probably say, yes, of course he is. I'm not a fan of either. I'm not an SEC fan. I'm not a Gamecock fan. I'm not a Clemson fan. But if I'm looking at the coaches, the way I look at it in terms of likability is who would you want to hang out with the most? So I did not jot down a list beforehand. I wanted to do this, and maybe it'll make things more complicated, but I wanted to just do it live on air. We'll come up with our rankings and, and see. We'll break it down organically, authentically, of where Shane Beamer ranks on the list. There are, of course, 14 coaches in the SEC. I could tell you right now, Clark Lee, all due respect, he may be a great guy. He's probably last on my list. Did you watch his uh, press conference the other day at Media Days? He does not seem like a guy I'd want to go grab a beer with. He may be an incredible man. I don't know. I'm just not interested. No, thank you. Um, I would tell you, Eli Drinkwitz, to me, for some reason, comes off as, I don't think I would enjoy spending time with him. He doesn't really intrigue me either. 
Billy Napier was the one I wanted the Gamecocks to hire, but I haven't seen enough of him. And I watched some of his press conferences this week, eh, a little dull. So I don't know if I would want to, you know, I don't know if Billy Napier would be high up on my list. But guys I would like to, you know, sit down and have a beer with and just hang out. We don't even have to talk football. Just sit down, watch a game, hang out, chit-chat, whoever, whatever it may be. Before I rank him, I would tell you, Shane Beamer is certainly up there. Lane Kiffin is absolutely up there. Um, Sam Pittman's intriguing. I feel like I would get along with Sam Pittman well, but he doesn't have a ton of that charisma when he's dealing with the media. When he's on the sideline, when he's with his team, he's more animated. But he's a little more subdued when he talks you know, to the press, when he does interviews, doesn't show his personality. I feel like he would be one of those guys that, in a sneaky way, you hang out with Sam Pittman, you go in thinking like, oh, this is going to be very great, and you're going to have the time of your life. He seems like he, you get him alone, you get him at the bar, he could be a really cool guy. If I name drop, I have spent time with Josh Heupel before. Really great guy. I like him a lot. Part of the reason why I always root for Tennessee. Uh, I would hang out with him. And Mike Leach is one that most people would probably say. I think Leach, though, and I'm, I'm a fan of Leach. I've soured in years past. I think Leach is kind of a bully. I think Leach, because he goes up there and he talks about Netflix and he loves pirates and he talks about all this other stuff that you kind of for, forget or forgive or ignore some of the negatives with Mike Leach. He could be a bit of a jerk. We know about some issues with the players in the past. It cost him his job at Texas Tech. He calls out his players all the time, which eh, maybe you appreciate. We only focus on the the funny things. It's almost like uh, the shiny object over here to disguise you. And it's like, oh, that's just Mike Leach. As a Red Sox fan, I remember when Manny being Manny was a thing in, in regards to Manny Ramirez. And whenever he would screw up, like on the baseball, oh, that's just Manny being Manny. No, like that was a bad baseball play. We can't just excuse it because he's got a goofy personality and he's smiling all the time. Like he, he blew the game. Oh, that's just Manny being Manny. He'd get in trouble like off the field. Eh, it's just Manny being Manny. It's like a, it becomes a catchphrase. Like this is a sitcom and uh, nothing bad is actually going to happen. Mike Leach is like, oh, yeah, that's just goofy Mike Leach. He thinks he's a pirate and he talks about Netflix instead of football. And, you know, he's so great. I don't think I'd have Mike Leach high up on my list. And Nick Saban. I love Nick Saban. I don't really know why. Maybe it's because he's such a great coach. Sometimes he could seem um, a little cold, a little short. Maybe he doesn't give off. He doesn't show his personality too often. But I think he's really fascinating. I think he's a really smart guy. I think he's interesting. And then we always get these stories about the real Nick Saban, that he likes to drop these nuts jokes. I mean, come on. There's that video of when he was on the boat with some recruits or some players, and they ran out of gas. And it's a pretty funny video of Saban. They're stranded in the middle of the ocean. I think if you get Saban alone, I think he's a lot of fun. Kind of like Bill Belichick. There's always stories about Bel- We see Belichick with the media. You see him around the football team. But if you talk to his former players, if you talk to people who are close to Belichick, they tell you, you get him alone, right, he's, a, he's, he's a whole other person. He's a lot of fun. And there's stories about that, that before Belichick really made it big, media members saying, oh, yeah, we were friends. And then once, you know, once he became the coach of the Patriots, he kind of ignored me because I'm in the media. But there's a lot of stories of, like, a younger Belichick, great guy. I think he's just become a little um, neurotic or, I don't know if insecure is the right term, but he uh, doesn't let people into his bubble. I think Saban's the same way. If you get Saban alone and you're not a media member looking to, for, like, a gotcha moment when he can let his guard down, I think Saban's a lot of fun. So with all that said, what's my list look like? We have Beamer, Lane Kiffin, um, Saban, and Heupel. And then to round out a top five, I'd probably put in Sam Pittman. I don't think I'm missing anybody else. 
So if I were to do my rankings, the number one SEC coach I would want to hang out with the most probably would be Nick Saban. And part of it is just because of the success on the football field, that he is the greatest football coach, in my opinion, the greatest college football coach we've ever had. Then I think I go Lane Kiffin, number two, and then Shane Beamer probably slots in at number three. Heupel is a close four. As I said, I spent a day with him once when he was coaching in Florida, and he was a really cool guy. But I think I put Beamer three. So that'd be my Mount Rushmore. Saban, Kiffin, then I think Beamer goes third, which is pretty good for a guy who's only been on the job for about a year and a half, and it's not like he's been winning national championships. And then I would go uh, Heupel, like I said. And fifth, probably be uh, Sam Pittman. I think Kirby Smart could be another one that, like, uh, quietly would be a lot of fun if you got him one-on-one, let his guard down away from football. I think he could have a good time with you. But those would probably be my top five. Now, Trent, if I bring it to you, most likable guy, who would you want? What SEC coach would you want to hang out with the most? Well, I base this, Luke, off of who I would want to hang out with, and we're not talking football, right? Just chatting, having a good time, like you were saying. And my number one has to be Lane Kiffin. I think he would be the best time out of every SEC coach. We've heard, you know, the earlier stories, the Joey Freshwater situation. I can't even imagine him as a young lad out in L.A. doing his thing. I would have loved to have been there. Lane Kiffin, definitely number one for me. I agree with you. Saban, I would love to sit down with Saban and just, he seems like a funny guy. Like yeah. when, I, like you said, off of the field, he's a hard-nosed guy. But those guys are usually the funniest when you get off the field. Shane Beamer's up there, but I have to disagree a little bit. Oh. I might say Mike Leach I would want to sit down and have a beer with just because he wouldn't talk football the entire time. I'd like to hear his pirate stories. <laughs> I'd like to hear what shows he's watching, how he feels about politics and the world today i think he'd be an interesting conversation maybe you know in a limited time space hey leach we can hang out for an hour right because he might just talk for four or five hours but i'd put leach up there maybe shane beamer four and then i would have to say kirby smart five i think he's a sneaky guy like after the national championship i bet he had a great time luke morrow great time i heard kirby in an interview uh this week where he said when they won a national championship when he was on saban staff they had a coaches meeting the next morning after winning the national championship and Saban went through everything that they did wrong the very next morning but Kirby brought this up because he said yeah when we won the national championship we were not holding that coaches meeting the next morning we were having a good time so I do agree with you that I think he's just another sneaky one that you get Kirby smart he's a little uh I don't know what the right term is he doesn't really show his personality a ton either seems like he's uh kind of bland but I think same idea you get him away from the football field one-on-one he looks like yeah he could have some fun so Beamer you said what fourth yeah, Beamer fourth. That's, that's good. Uh, you know, I think Beamer looks like an IPA guy to me, and I enjoy a good IPA. So if we could sit at a brewery, hang out, have a good time, then I, I would love to hang out with Shane Beamer. Good salt of the earth gentleman. Yeah, he certainly seems to be. That's what happens when you come from from Charleston. Um, <laughs> Lane Kiff, I'm, I'm the, I put Lane Kiff in second, but I'm with you, Lane Kiff. Did you see the video? The other day when he was in the mall and his oh, daughter spent like 700 bucks yeah. on shoes or something. It was, yeah, I think it was a uh, clothing company called Zara. And he said, <laughs> how, how much did you spend? She said, I think it was $729. <laughs> he was like, what am I going to do? Yeah. What am I going to do? He That's che- crazy. He checked his pulse. Like he was. Uh, <laughs> that was a great reaction. It's a funny video. If you haven't seen it, look it up. There's a bunch of those of Lane Kiffin, of his daughters doing like TikToks with him where he doesn't know. They're putting him in a situation just to see his reaction. Yeah, he just seems like he just he's always seemed like a fun guy. A little too fun, right? He's got himself in trouble because he just speaks his mind. He'll say whatever. He's always (laughs) been younger than his peers. Uh, I've always been a Lane Kiffin guy. I've always defended him. I've always liked Lane, and I'm happy to see he's doing well at Ole Miss. And people are giving him some credit finally because I always thought he was an underrated coach and a really good offensive coach. And then just 
personality-wise, yeah, I, I love Lane. I would love to hang out with him. I was at Ole Miss when he got hired as the new head coach. It was chaos. Sure. Everybody was so excited for Lane Kiffin and his first press conference at the school addressing everybody. Magical. Absolutely magical. We immediately hopped on the Lane train. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. I'm sure. I would, too. I've been on that Lane train for a while. I love Lane Kiffin. So long story short, those are our rankings. Do they mean much? No, not really. But it also does show the job that Shane Beamer, not a lot of times a first-time coach comes in without any experience, without any track record, and they do the job that Beamer has in a short amount of time just to make himself seem likable. And I think that gives you more chances. We've all worked for different companies and different industries. The jerk in your office, even if he's good at what he does, you don't like him, you can't stand him, you can't wait until he moves on. Then there's somebody else who may not be as good as maybe they should be, but they're a really great guy. You love hanging out with them. You give them more opportunities. You look past some of their, their failures because they're just a really good guy. They're, you, know, you, like hang, you like going to grab a drink at happy hour with them. Are they the best worker? No, but you forgive some of that because you like their personality. You get along with them. You're friends with them. And football's a dog-eat-dog world, certainly, but I think Shane Beamer, or any coach for that matter, right? if the fan base just likes you in general, if the media likes you, the boosters get along, you're just a good guy, it, it gives you more opportunities. The jerk? Oh, you can't wait to run that guy out of town. In fact, you could say that was kind of Dan Mullen. Now, he got fired within a year of getting to the SEC title game. He's somebody that can be a little hard to get along with. Harbaugh's another one. Harbaugh, Michigan fans are always looking to run out of town. Right? He's a little rough around the edges. But when you're uh, a good guy, nice coach, you get along with people, you seem to be likable, you seem to be a regular person, I think it almost provides you with more opportunities. So it certainly can't hurt. Coming up, we usually do Trent Stakes around this time, but we went long on that, so maybe we'll bump that to next hour. And uh, we'll get to something else instead, because today we still have to uh, look at week one of the NFL season, seven weeks out. We'll get to that coming up, where we'll run through all of the games of week one, and I'll give you already my seven-week-out predictions of said games. There's a couple I really like. And also, coming up, speaking of the SEC, there's a couple of programs that have to try to be hungry despite getting fed last year. How can they try to do so? We'll get to that coming up. And we'll touch on the ESPYs as well. Still more to do throughout the afternoon. It's the Mar Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. It's Throwback Thursday. What's today? It's Thursday. Really? Feels like Tuesday. Tuesday has no feel. Monday has a feel. Friday has a feel. Sunday has a feel. I feel Tuesday and Wednesday. All right, shut up to both of you. On the Morrow Midday Show. She kisses the It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. The NFL season begins seven weeks from today as we kick off the season on a Thursday night. And what a game. By the way, I was looking at the schedule the other day, just the Thursday night games. The NFL does this every time, and it's smart business. But whenever they get a new partner, broadcast partner, they always give them a great schedule. Thursday night football this year, it's going to be on Amazon, right? Thursday night football. It is a great Thursday night football schedule, and it begins with uh, week one. 
But these primetime games this year should be really good. So I figured, I know we're only seven weeks out, but this week we're looking ahead to college football. You get the media days. Everybody's excited. We're looking ahead to the NFL. I gave you my concerns earlier for the AFC. We'll look at the NFC uh, on tomorrow's show, of course, including the Panthers and the Falcons. What's the biggest concern for those? And I figured, well, it's never too early to look ahead to get excited to talk about week one of the season in some of these games. When it comes to these games, we'll we'll dive into them. Uh, somebody on the text line, you can always text the show, 843-608-1734, said they're hearing eight games for Deshaun Watson. What are my thoughts? Yeah, that seems to be the thought right now that most people believe will be eight games. I don't have many thoughts because none of us truly know, and nobody that's reporting on this truly knows either. And we're seeing all sorts of different figures thrown out. I think it's safe to assume Deshaun's going to miss some time. He won't be available week one against Carolina. But how long will he be gone for? Who knows? I've seen 10 different numbers be thrown out. I'll just wait for the actual decision. With that said, I assume Deshaun won't be playing week one. Baker Mayfield is now on the Carolina Panthers. And when I look at the week one slate, I like Carolina a lot in week one at home against Cleveland. It'd be one of my favorite bets already today. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not one, and it's a fault of mine as a gambling man. I don't like to lock things in too soon. Uh, I don't like to commit to things just in general too far in advance. So I guess betting-wise, I'm the same way. I don't want to bet. And then my money's being held up for a couple of months, and I forget about it. And, and I get, right, the odds are going to change. you got to jump on it when you can. It's just not my style. I would have loved to have grabbed the Panthers before the news came out with Deshaun. The Panthers, though, are still, uh, or I should say before the news with Baker Mayfield, the Panthers, though, are still underdogs. They're underdogs at home against Cleveland week one. I love Carolina week one. Baker Mayfield against his former team. It won't be Deshaun Watson playing for Cleveland. I think the Panthers win that game to start the year. Last year, week one, Sam Darnold started at home for Carolina against his former team, the Jets. He played really well. They won the game. I think it's going to be very similar with Baker. And it was similar in the sense of the quarterback he went up against as well, where they were starting Zach Wilson in his first ever NFL game. Jacoby Brissett, it won't be his first game, but he's the backup playing for the Browns for the first time. You got Baker on the other side. I like the Panthers a lot. Right now, it'd be one of my favorite bets of week one. Take the Panthers as an underdog week one. You have the Bills opening up the season at the Rams. The Bills are favored in L.A. I think I like the Rams. Now, they always say, right, it's a big night. You get your Super Bowl rings. You want to stay away from those teams. It's a little emotional. It's dramatic. Then they they have to play a football game after just celebrating the Super Bowl. They're thinking of last year's success. But if you give me the Rams as an underdog at home to kick off the season against the Bills, I'll take those chances. I think the Rams are going to win. The Falcons start the year at home against the Saints. The Falcons are a four-and-a-half-point underdog. I tell you, I think that number's too big, but I do think the Saints would win that game. The 49ers open up the year in Chicago as a six-and-a-half-point favorite. The Niners, on paper, should blow out the Bears, but week one we know is always a toss-up. I thought the Lions were actually going to beat the Niners in Detroit last year week one. That was my favorite bet, and uh, they did not win. I think they covered the spread, though. So I could see something similar here where week one, San Francisco has to travel across half the country, go to Chicago. Nobody's expecting anything from the Bears. New coach for Chicago. Six and a half is a lot, though, for week one. I could see the Bears at least covering the number. The Bengals are six and a half point favorites at home against Pittsburgh. I love divisional underdogs week one, especially when they're at home. The Steelers are not at home in this case. But six and a half is way too much for a divisional game even though the Bengals were just in the Super Bowl and the Steelers don't really have a great answer at the quarterback position. I think that number's too big. I would tell you that Cincinnati's going to win week one, but by more than a touchdown, I don't know. The Jets open up as six-point dogs at home against the Ravens. The Ravens absolutely should win that game. 
and they should win by more than six. But again, when it comes to week one, I like a lot of underdogs. The Ravens won't be in midseason form yet. The Jets won't know they suck yet. Everybody has hope week one of the season. The Jets will be at home. The fans will be there. They're going to go wild. It's the start of a season. Everybody's hopeful. Week one, I like a lot of closer games. The Eagles head to Detroit week one as a four-point favorite. That's another one. That you know We're getting reports that Jalen Hurts isn't doing great in practice right now for Philadelphia. Everybody assumes the Eagles should blow out the Lions, but the Lions were really tough last year. They were competitive. The Eagles' record was a little hollow a year ago. Week one in Detroit, the fans will be going crazy. I can see the Lions actually winning that game as a four-point underdog. The Colts' eight-point favorite in Houston, along with the Panthers, this was I gave you this bet months ago. This is my favorite play of week one, where the Texans take them as an eight-point dog at home. Every year, going back at least a decade, week one, a favorite of a touchdown or more has lost outright. It happens every year to one team. The Colts are favored by eight in Houston. Matt Ryan's first game, everybody expects Houston's going to be bad. It happened last year, the Colts lost week one. Was that last year or two years ago? It may have been two years ago. The Jaguars, like, only win was week one. Yeah, that was two years ago, right? They beat the Colts. Same idea. The Colts with Phillip Rivers went on the road week one to Jacksonville. They were a touchdown favorite, lost outright. I think it happens again this year. I think the Texans win that game outright. They're plus 300 on the money line today. A couple other ones in week one of the NFL season as we look ahead seven weeks out and doing so mostly from a betting perspective. The Commanders are four-point favorites at home against Jacksonville. I don't know. Is Carson Wentz that much better than even Trevor Lawrence right now? The Dolphins open as two-and-a-half-point favorites at home against the Patriots. That's an intriguing one. Week one, Patriots-Dolphins right away. A lot of questions around those two teams. That'll be a lot of fun. Now you get Tua against Bill Belichick. Belichick does great against young quarterbacks. But you also get Bill Belichick in Miami, where he has not been great. However, it is week one, um, which actually probably fares worse for New England because it will be even hotter in Miami. That's an intriguing matchup on September 11th that I would have to dive more into. You get Belichick against a young quarterback. He feasts on young quarterbacks. But the Patriots have always struggled going to Miami, especially early in the year when it's really hot. And I imagine September 11th will still be hot in South Florida. The Titans open as six-and-a-half-point favorites at home against the Giants. That number seems too big for week one. Especially at Ryan Tannehill. You don't know what you're going to get from him. No A.J. Brown. couple last games. Chargers, three-and-a-half-point favorite over the Raiders week one. A rematch of the final game last year. Should be fun. The Chiefs, three-point favorites in Arizona. Buccaneers, two-point favorites in Dallas. That was week one. A year ago where the Cowboys gave Tampa all they could handle. And the best save for last, the Packers go to Minnesota. Week one, Minnesota's a two-point underdog at home. I love divisional underdogs at home. Week one, it's very profitable. Give me the Vikings to win outright. If we look ahead seven weeks from now, and my opinion may change between now and then, I love the Texans, I love the Panthers, and I love the Vikings. Three underdogs. Week one of the NFL season. I'll place my bets now. Hour three, coming up next, we'll talk about the ESPYs. Some more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Back, 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 back again. Stay back, 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 
Guess who's back? 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 Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, there's a couple of programs in the SEC that kind of go from the hunter to the hunted. How will they handle that this year? We'll talk about that coming up a little bit later on. Plus, we have to get to Trent's takes before we go later on this hour. And we'll touch on the ESPYs in just a moment as well, which occurred last night. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Find the show's podcasted right there. While there, you can also get in touch with the show. You can leave a message for the show by heading over to charlestonsportsradio.com, clicking on our show page, and leaving a comment there. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. Text the show, 843-608-1734. Or you can always join the conversation on the phone, 843-721-9500. The ESPYs were last night. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. I'll be honest with you, I didn't watch any of it live. It's what probably most of us, at least of a certain age, do with events now, unless it's live sports. You get the highlights online afterwards, which is what I did. I watched all the videos that were posted on Twitter and ESPN.com or YouTube even to see how Steph Curry did. And Steph did pretty much as expected, maybe a little worse than I thought. But I said yesterday in air, I thought he'd be good, not great. And I was concerned about that personality. And I couldn't really come up with the words yesterday. Then I was watching him last night, and it was charisma is what I was trying to – it was really what I was thinking in my head. That I was worried that Steph uh, lacks that charisma, and I thought he did last night. Now, I had a couple good lines – but, again, you have a, a writing team usually for these events. I don't know how many of those jokes. I don't know if he's writing his own jokes backstage or if people are helping him. They even did a video where Kevin Hart, right, they did a parody video of Kevin Hart and Peyton Manning helping him write jokes. So that's half the battle. And then the other half is delivering the lines. And there's some guys that can make anything sound funny because they're delivering. I think uh, Sebastian Maniscalco is one of those guys now. His material isn't always great, but his delivery is always fun. Chris Farley was one of those guys that he could, you know, read the alphabet, but the way he would do it would be so hilarious. And then vice versa, there are guys that have great material but don't really deliver it well. I think Steph Curry had some good jokes in there. Some were corny. But I think the big thing was just his delivery wasn't great. Didn't have that charisma. You know, some guys just aren't great public speakers. Didn't really have that outward personality. So I didn't watch a whole lot of the ESPYs last night. I'm, I've never been into any type of award shows, but I was curious to see how Steph does. I was interested to see the monologue. That's what I watch. When Ricky Gervais is hosting you know, the Golden Globes, I'll watch his monologue. I don't care about the actual award winners. I'll read about them online later if I'm interested. But in terms of Steph Curry, that was the biggest story to me. Eh, I guess he gets a passing grade, but maybe like a C. I really wasn't all that impressed with uh, the job done. I didn't think it was like a Peyton Manning performance. Steph Curry did okay. Not great. Trent, did you watch 
any of the ESPYs last night. Yeah, you know, I watched about 15 minutes of it live uh, just to get Steph and see how he did with the opening monologue. That's the main concern, yeah. right? That's The ESPYs is known for whatever host. So I think back to Drake and I think back to Peyton Manning. Bada bing, bada boom. Those guys were incredible. Their opening monologues were awesome. And the timing and delivery, that's all that matters here. Steph had some good jokes, like you said, some corny jokes, but the timing wasn't there. He's not... He's obviously an entertainer, one of the greatest of all time on the court. There's no doubt about it, an absolute dog from what we've heard. But as far as, you know, telling jokes, it wasn't it wasn't all the way there. Mm. The Grant Williams dig was nice. You know, the LeBron dig was nice. Yep. Kind of expected those to come, though, a little bit. Yeah, he had a good line about uh, the Rams winning the Super Bowl and something to paraphrase about uh, at least uh, – I'm going to butcher it – but at least one team that bought a bunch of veterans is having success, something along those lines. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poking fun at the Lakers, of course, bringing in all those, you know, Russell Westbrook and LeBron James, Carmelo, and not making the playoffs. That was a pretty good line. Um, the delivery again, like all of his material could have been a little better. Uh, somebody had uh, texted the show and said, uh, this just in LeBron James approaches SB stage and slaps Steph Curry after poking fun at him. <laughs> if there would be one guy that would do it, that would pull a Will Smith, it will probably be LeBron. I mean, it could be a Draymond Green, but you know, he's on Steph Curry's side. He wouldn't do that to Steph Curry. But if there was one guy that would go up there and actually take offense to it, uh, I could probably see it being LeBron. That was another kind of corny bit. They had Draymond recording a podcast yeah. in the crowd. Yeah, that was – well, I kind of expected, like, the Warriors to be a, you know – because obviously the story behind them is incredible, right? Clay yeah. comes back. They weren't supposed to win it. They weren't even close to being a favorite when it came to the NBA Finals, and they pull it off against the number one team in the East. Like, incredible story, obviously. I think they deserved, you know, all the awards that they won. But it's Steph Curry hosting. It's like, yeah, they're going to pull Draymond in. Clay doesn't really like to talk too much, so they'll leave him out, but – yeah, that was that was that very corny, very corny. Yeah, yeah, it was. But you knew they'd probably do something with the whole Draymond podcast without right. making the story that was. So maybe you watched the ESPYs last night. I'll be honest. I, I know it's an ESPN thing. We're an affiliate. We should always support ESPN. I've just never been into any type of uh, award show, especially sports award. Like, I don't care. I watch the sports. I don't need to watch the ESPYs to see who people are giving these different awards to. It doesn't make a difference to me. But with that said, you know, yesterday um, you may have heard Greeny here on our airwaves yesterday, and they devoted the whole show to um, talking about, you know, cancer because of the Jimmy V Foundation. Because when you think of ESPYs, you know, we did earlier this week a top 10 most memorable all-star game moments. If we were to do some sort of list of most memorable ESPY moments, I think Jimmy V and his speech, of course, would be number one. Now, maybe you don't always remember that that was at the ESPYs. You just know the speech. But then if I were to tell you, hey, that happened at the ESPYs, right, that, that's the, the number one takeaway from the ESPYs really all time. So I figured today it is a throwback Thursday, plus the ESPYs were last night. It would be a good time because I, it's one of my favorite speeches that really anyone has given, certainly from the sports world. And I think it applies to uh, anybody in life, in or out of sports. It was a great speech delivered by Jimmy V at the ESPYs on March 4th, 1993. He ended up passing away only weeks later. Before we get to the audio, you know, you may not have realized if you watched it live or if you go watch the videos just how how bad of shape he was in. Uh, the longer videos on YouTube show he has to be helped up on the stage and off the stage by other people. Uh, it was a concern just getting him there. It was in New York. Um, and he ended up passing away within like six weeks from this speech, which is pretty remarkable to look back and how good he was and how uh, like lucid, for lack of a better term, just delivering a great speech weeks away from passing away and with the health he was dealing with, the issues. 
But I figured we'd play almost the entire thing, not quite the whole thing, but pretty close to it, a great speech given by Jimmy V on this throwback Thursday from 1993, almost 30 years ago. Here's the famed Jimmy V speech from the ESPYs uh, here on a throwback Thursday. I can't tell you what an honor it is to even be mentioned the same breath with an Arthur Ashe. Um, this is something I certainly will, will treasure forever. But as, as uh, was said on the tape, I, and I also I don't have one of those things going with the cue cards, so I'm going to speak longer than anybody else has spoken tonight. That, that's the way it goes. Time, time is very precious to me. I don't know how much I have left, and I have some things that I would like to say. Hopefully, at the end, I'll have something that will be uh, important to, uh, to other people, too. But I can't help it. Now, when I'm fighting cancer, everybody knows that. Uh, and people ask me all the time about how you, you go through your life and how's your day. And nothing has changed for me, as Dick said. I'm a very emotional, passionate man. I can't help it. That's being the son of Rocco and Angelina Valvano. That just comes with the territory, right? We hug, we kiss, we love. And, and when people say to me, how do you get through uh, life or, or each day, it's the same thing. To me, there are three things we all should do every day. We do this every day of our life. You're going to have, what a wonderful, number one is laugh. You should laugh every day. Number two is think. You should spend some time in thought. And number three is you should have your emotions moved to tears. Could be happiness or joy. But think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You do that seven days a week, you're going to have something special. And so I can't help. I rode on the plane up today with Mike Krzyzewski, my, my good friend and a wonderful coach where people don't realize he's a ten times better person than he is a coach. And we know he's a great coach. He's meant a lot to me in these last five or six months of my battle. But when I look at Mike, I think we competed against each other as players. I coached against him for 15 years. And I always have to think about what's important in life is to think to me of three things, where you started, where you are, and where you're going to be. Those are the three things that I try and do every day. And, you know, when I think about getting up and giving a speech, I can't help it. I have to remember the first speech I ever gave. I was coaching at Rutgers University. That was my first job. All I, oh, we got some, wonderful. And I was the freshman coach. That's when freshmen played on freshman team. And I was so fired up about my first job. I see Lou Holtz, Coach Holtz here. What was it like the first job you had, right? The very first time you stood in a locker room to give a pep talk. That's a special place, the locker room, for a coach to give a talk. So my idol as a coach was Vince Lombardi. And I read this book called Commitment to Excellence by Vince Lombardi. And in the book, Lombardi talked about the first time he spoke before his Green Bay Packer team in a locker room. There were perennial losers. And I'm reading this. And Lombardi said he was thinking, should it be a long talk, a short talk? But he wanted to be emotional. He said, be brief. And this is what he did. He, he, normally, you get in a locker room, I don't know, 25 minutes, a half hour before the team takes the field. You do your little X and O's, and then you give the great Newt Rockney talk. We all do. Speech number 84. You pull him right out. You get, you get ready. Get your squad ready. Well, this is the first one I ever gave. And I read this thing, Lombardi. What he said was, he didn't go in. He waited. His team was wondering, where is he? Where is this great coach? He's not there. Ten minutes. He's still not there. Three minutes before to take the field, Lombardi comes in, bangs the door open, and I think you all remember what great presence he had. 
And I had great presence. And he walked in, and he just walked back and forth like this, just walk, staring at the players. And he said, all eyes on me. And I'm reading this in this book, and I'm getting a picture of this Lombardi before the, his first game. And he said, gentlemen, we will be successful this year. You can focus on three things and three things only. Your family, your religion, and the Green Bay Packers. And, he, and the rest of it, they knocked the walls down. The rest was history. I said, that's beautiful. I'm going to do that. Your family, your religion, and Rutgers basketball. That's it. I had it. I'm, listen, I'm 21 years old. The kids I'm coaching are 19. All right? And, I, and I'm going to be the greatest coach in the world, the next Lombardi. And I'm, ready, and I'm practicing out in a, right beside the locker room. The, the manager's telling me, you got to go in. Not yet, not yet. Family, religion. Rutgers basketball. All eyes on me. I got it. I got it. And now finally he said, three minutes. I said, fine. True story. I go to knock the doors open just like the body. Boom. It didn't open. <laughs> I almost broke my arm. I was like, you know, it was one that didn't open. Now I'm down. The players are looking. You know, coach, get, uh, help the coach up. Help him up. You know? And now I did like Lombardi. I walked back and forth. Right? And I was going like that with my arm. Get the feeling back in it. And finally I said, gentlemen, all eyes on me. And these kids wanted to play. They're 19. Let's go. I said, gentlemen, we'll be successful this year if you can focus on three things and three things only. They said, yeah. They said, your family, your religion, and the Green Bay Packers, I told them. <laughs> I did that. I remember that. <laughs> I remember. I remember where I came from. It's so important to know where you are. And I know where I am right now. How do you go from where you are to where you want to be? And I think it, it, you have to have an enthusiasm for life. You have to have a dream, a goal. And you have to be willing to work for it. I talked about my family. My family is so important. People think I have courage. The courage of my family is my wife, Pam, my three daughters here, Nicole, Jamie, Leanne, my mom, who is right here, too. And, and, And the screen is flashing up there 30 seconds like I care about that screen right now, huh? <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got tumors all over my body. I'm worried about some guy in the back going 30 seconds, huh? You got a lot. Hey, phenomenal, buddy. You got a lot. <laughs> all right, get you. Hey, get me. Hey, nuts. I got, I just got one last thing. I urge all of you all of you, to enjoy your life, the precious moments you have, to spend each day with some laughter and some thought, to get your emotions going, to be enthusiastic every day. And Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nothing great can be accomplished without enthusiasm, to keep your dreams alive in spite of problems, whatever you have, to be able to work hard for your dreams to, become, to come true, become a reality. Now I... I look at where I, I am now and I know what I want to do. What I would like to be able to do is to spend whatever time I have left and to give and maybe some hope to others. Right? Arthur Ashe Foundation is a wonderful thing. And, and AIDS, the, the, the amount of money pouring in for AIDS is not enough, but it is significant. But if I told you it's 10 times the amount that goes in for cancer research, I also tell you that 500,000 people will die this year of cancer. And I also tell you that one in every four will be afflicted with this disease. And yet, for somehow, we seem to have put it in a little bit of the background. I want to bring it back on the front table. We need your help. 
I need your help. We need money for research. It may not save my life. It may save my children's lives. It may save someone you love. And it's very important. And ESPN has been so kind to support me in this endeavor and allow me to announce tonight that with ESPN's support, which means what? Their, 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 their money and their dollars and they're helping me. We are starting the Jim, Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research. And its, and its motto is, don't give up, don't ever give up. And that's what I'm going to try to do. Every minute that I have left, I will thank God for the day and the moment I have. And if you see me, smile and maybe give me a hug, because that's important to me too. But try, if you can, to support, whether it's AIDS or the Cancer Foundation, so that, that someone else might survive, might prosper, and might actually be cured of this dreaded disease. I can't thank ESPN enough for allowing this to happen, and I'm going to work as hard as I can, you know, for cancer research, and hopefully we'll be, maybe we'll have some cures and some breakthroughs, and I'd like to think, I'm going to fight my brains out to be back here again next year for the Arthur Ashe recipient. I want to give it next year. I know I've got to go. I've, I've got to go, and I've got one last thing. I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Cancer can take away all my physical abilities. It cannot touch my mind. It cannot touch my heart, and it cannot touch my soul. And those three things are going to carry on forever. I thank you, and God bless you all. The famed and uh, very well done speech from Jimmy V at the ESPYs in 1993 after we had the ESPYs last night, almost 30 years later. And Dickie V delivered a pretty darn good speech last night as well, after he has since uh, overcome cancer in his own right as well. On a throwback Thursday, I figured it's certainly worthwhile to bring back that piece of audio from Jimmy V. It applies to anybody really in all walks of life. The good messages in there from Valvano weeks before he ended up passing away, and one of the more iconic speeches delivered by anybody in the sports world and certainly anybody on ESPN and just in general, over the last 30 years, something that is oftentimes referred to and still plays a big role in sports and in life today with the Jimmy V Foundation and Jimmy V Week and always referring back to that great speech delivered 29 years ago from Valvano. When we come back, we'll try to get some levity back on the show. Uh, when we come back, a couple of teams in the SEC now have a different role. They went from being the hunter to now maybe being a little more hunted. Of course, obviously, Georgia. How will teams handle that this year? We'll get to that next. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Coming up, 
How will certain SEC programs handle a bit of a role reversal this year? Get to that here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. SEC Media Days continuing throughout the week. We'll preview and break down the SEC. I'll give you my official predictions on the show tomorrow for the SEC as they continue with uh, Media Days there in Atlanta. You know, but it's interesting you hear all these coaches speak and talk about different things. And one of the one of the angles yesterday was the idea of a couple of programs being in a different situation. Most notably, Georgia. You spent 40 years trying to win a national championship. Now you won that national championship. It's going to be a little bit different this year. You're the defending national champs instead of trying to catch up to Alabama. You just beat Alabama on the biggest stage a year ago. It's a little bit of a different role. And it sounds so simple, right? These kids want to go out there and continue to win, but it's a little more challenging after you win the championship to come back with that same chip on the shoulder of uh, nobody believes in us and, you know, we got to get past Alabama. we got to do this for the last 40 years of this program. Well, now they did it. So how will you handle coming into this season for the first time in a long time, first time for any of these people, as the defending national champs? And to a lesser degree, you know, somebody like Arkansas has to deal with that as well, where when Sam Pittman took over, there were no expectations. Then they won nine games last year. You know, they're a top-20 program. And I think they may be the second-best team in that division behind Alabama. I think uh, they may be the third-best team in all of the SEC. And so it's a little bit different where you have Sam Pittman, who wasn't hired until he was 58 years old as a head coach, and he could go in there to his guys and say, nobody believes in us. Nobody believed in me. Nobody believes in you. They think Arkansas is terrible, yada, yada, yada. Well, last year you had a pretty good year. This year we have higher expectations. Everyone thinks K.J. Jefferson's one of the best quarterbacks in the conference. It's hard to continue to try to put that chip on their shoulder. Arkansas, not to the same degree as Georgia, but kind of going from the hunter, where they didn't win a conference game for multiple years, to now kind of getting hunted. There's a lot of teams behind them in the power rankings in the SEC that want to go beat Arkansas. When the Gamecocks go play at Arkansas week two, the Gamecocks are going to be the underdogs. That would be a big win for South Carolina. That's how quickly Sam Pittman has turned things around. Where two years ago, you're looking at the schedule thing like, oh, yeah, there's a win. We get to play Arkansas? That's an easy win in the conference. Now it'd be a big win. Well, those two coaches spoke about it yesterday. Here is Kirby Smart at Media Days talking about, of course, this idea of, hey, we just won a national championship. We cleared that big hurdle. How do you make sure you come back the next year with the same desire, fight, and want? Uh, here was uh, Kirby yesterday. You know, we started this thing off last year with the quote, success comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it. Well, we embraced that last year, and guess what? That doesn't change. So for our team, it's embedded in what we do. You know, we didn't build this program on uh, hoping for one-year wonders or hoping for one opportunity. We built the program to be sustained. And you sustain it by what you do every single day. And this program was built to be here for a long time. And we have an unbelievable footprint with which we get to recruit. So the five-hour radius of Athens, Georgia, gives us a chance to be around some of the best football student-athletes there are in the country. So we'll continue to recruit those, develop those, also going nationally. But the team that we have coming back, I've been around, done the rounds this morning. I'll bet you at least 50 people have asked me the question. So feel free when we open up for questions to ask me the concern there is for complacency. That does not concern me in the least. Because to be complacent, you have to have done something and achieved something. The men on this team for this season have not done that. They have not. 
We had 15 players that are now gone to NFL uh, camps or draft picks. They're gone. And we have some returning players, but they're hungry as ever. People have asked the question, how does it feel to be hunted? We will not be hunted at the University of Georgia. I can promise you that. The hunting that we do will be done from us going the other direction. Um, it's not something we're going to sit back and be passive about. It all sounds good. It's also kind of coaches talk. You know, for years, Georgia has always been the one getting hunted in their own division. Everyone else trying to catch up or keep up with them in that division of the SEC. I'll circle back to Georgia in just a moment, but here was Sam Pittman. And recall uh, that, you know, Shane Beamer was talking about this earlier this week as well, about the idea that we haven't accomplished anything yet. And I know everyone's excited about this program, but we still got to go out there and win. So this is always a big talking point for all coaches, that when you kind of exceed expectations, then when expectations change on you, people go from expecting nothing to now expecting something, right? How are the guys going to handle that? Beamer talked about it. Kirby Smart talked about it plenty this week. Sam Pittman had to talk about it with Arkansas. Now that the expectations for that program have changed, here's what Sam Pittman said about, you know, how you try to handle that as a coach. It's your third year at Arkansas, first time you're not being picked to finish seventh in the SEC West. Doesn't it feel kind of good to be recognized for the success that you and your players have had? And, and how has it been different this season where you're actually getting, you know, credit from a lot of people? You know, I said when I got the head coaching job that the only decisions that I'd make, they would not concern public opinion. That way, if, if we win, we win as a group. And if we lose and I get fired, I get fired because I did it like I wanted to. So uh, obviously you can't, you can't live in a cave and not hear what people say about you or predictions and all that stuff but that if that's the only driving force that you have you're going you're going to lose uh, if that's the only driving force to be good you're going to lose um, so if we can keep our core values of let's go let's go out work people let's out tough people let's play let's be the hardest playing team in football i don't know if we are or not that's the goal sam pittman yesterday it's easy to say all these things and deliver these messages but then you know, you have to hope that it actually applies. The team goes out there and does what you hope. Let's focus on Georgia because Kirby Smart also said yesterday on his appearance on the SEC Network, he said many question marks still loom for Georgia. And they did lose 15 players to the draft. I heard another interview that Kirby Smart did this week where he said, you know, when they won the national championship and the coaches were running on the field, he wasn't sure if it was more about excitement that they won the national championship or a sense of relief that they finally won the national championship, 40 years in the making. And that quote, that line stood out to me, especially when you look ahead to this season, right? Was it excitement that you finally won the national championship or was it a sense of relief like, oh, we finally got it done? Because the example I always use, you may say, right, it's silly to worry about these teams the next year. These kids always want to go win, and why would you settle for one national championship? Yeah, I get all that. But the example I always use It'd be like if you were training for a, a marathon and you're running every day and you're trying to get up to, you know, 26 miles. And for Georgia, it was kind of like a marathon. It was 40. I know Kirby Smart hasn't been there for 40 years and these players come and go. But it was that talking point and it was that narrative of A, getting past Alabama finally after all the heartbreaks and B, finally winning a national championship for the first time in four decades. It was like a marathon for Georgia fans in between championships. So when you're training for a marathon, you're running every day. And then you go out and you run that marathon. 
when you finish the marathon, is it more about excitement or is it more like a sense of relief that you you did it, you accomplished it, you got it done? And the very next day, are you waking up and are you going running again the next day? Are you going running two days later, three days later? Are you going to be running as much? Are you going to continue to train for another marathon? Or is it just like, oh, we finally, right, we got that done with. What a load off. Maybe it's something you always wanted to accomplish. I think we all do that in life. There are certain things that you just want to do. You do them once, you never do them again. And again, that's not to say Kirby has no desire to win this year or uh, Georgia doesn't care to win a national championship, but it's almost a little bit of human nature as well. I play uh, a little bit of the guitar, and I can tell you I'm similar uh, in that sense, and this is one example of same idea where I always, I'm just curious to see if I can play a song. And then I play the song, and I don't really go back to playing it. I keep a long list. I want to see how many songs I could actually learn or teach myself. But I don't actually play the songs all that often. I just jump from song. All right. Oh, I can play that one. That's good to know. Mark that down, that if I ever want to, I can play that one. Let me go see if I can play this song. And it's just that kind of thing. You just want that sense of accomplishment to see if you can do it. And then once you do it, it's like, all right, I learned how to play Wagon Wheel. It's not like I'm going to be playing Wagon Wheel every week. But I know I got that in the holster. Like, all right, well, I know I can play that song. I accomplished it. I achieved it. Doesn't mean I'm going to practice it every day or play it over and over again. I don't really have the desire to. I just wanted to know if I could do it. Georgia wanted to know. Kirby wanted to know. Can we beat Alabama? Can we win a national championship? Well, you did it. Now, it's not to say you kick your feet up and, you know, you, you're content now. But, again, it's just a little human nature. It's all part of us that once you accomplish that goal that you've been driving at for years, you've been training for months for that marathon, you do it. You just wanted to know you could do it. You wanted to prove yourself or prove to others, hey, I can do this. And then once you accomplish it, you probably don't have that same drive. The other expression people use is, you know, it's hard to be hungry after feasting. It's hard to stay hungry or keep an appetite after you just feasted. It's easy for Georgia to be hungry for a championship when they didn't have one for 40 years. Then they sat down and had a full-course meal a few months ago against Alabama. Can you still sit there and be hungry, or are you content and full? It's hard. Now, for Georgia, of course, you lost 15 players to the NFL, including many on that great defense. That's going to be tough to replace. A couple of the positives for Georgia, though, is the schedule. They should be favored in every game this year. Uh, Oregon's the one tough one in the non-conference. That schedule then allows them time to try to develop better pieces or just get guys more run as they have to replace a lot of players on the roster. And by the time you get to the end of the year when maybe they have to face Alabama, you'll be a more well-oiled machine. And then also you hope that you have an improved offense. Stetson Bennett, I know nobody wants to give him credit. I've been guilty of that as well, but you know he played pretty darn good down the stretch last year. He now comes back. You would assume he'll be better this year than a year ago. You don't have JT Daniels hanging over his head either. And maybe the offense could be a little bit better for Georgia this year. But it is interesting that they won the national championship, and yet nobody really talks about them like that. We talk like Alabama won the national championship. Alabama's favorite to win the conference. Alabama has better odds to win the championship this year. Georgia doesn't really get the respect of that defending champ because it happened for the first time in 40 years, and I think certain areas of the sport or fan base, certain college football fans, you know, just feel like it was a one-off. They lost to Alabama in the conference title game, came back. Ah, they did it with Stetson Bennett, though. They can't do that again. They lost all those guys to the NFL. I think there's a lot of doubt of uh, from football fans, SEC fans, a lot of doubt uh, of Georgia. But it is hard. We see it a lot in the NFL, Major League Baseball. We haven't had a repeat champion in 20 years. right? It is hard when you finally do win, especially when you've been waiting a long time to do it. It's just hard to get back there. It's hard to win in general, period. But then to duplicate that success after you know, you've been training for so long to get to that point, sometimes 
we just want to see if we can accomplish something. And then you don't have the same desire afterwards. You teach yourself how to do a new skill, but you never actually use the skill. You just want to know that you have it there in your holster. You can refer back to it. You know what you're capable of. And a lot of teams, once you finally win, it is a challenge to come back with that same drive. Once you finally ate, right, it's hard to keep that same hunger afterwards. We'll get to Trent's takes when we come back to finish up your Thursday. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We usually do Trent's takes uh, midway through the show, but we were talking about which SEC coaches we would most like to hang out with and went long on that topic. Uh, that uh, Instead, we're going to get to it in just a moment. If you ever missed anything from the show, such as that conversation from earlier, find the show podcasted by searching ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. With that said, it's time to get to it now. Time for Trent's takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's Panthers. right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The Radio Cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, before we get into sporting topics, you and I both are big stand-up comedy guys, mm-hmm. right? And we judge stand-up comedy like, you know, critics, if you will. We all know our favorites. You and I have similar tastes, and we kind of agree on who are the top guys and gals as of right now in the, in the stand-up comedy biz. Well, last night I watched a special from the man, the myth, the legend himself, New York's own Andrew Schultz. Now, Andrew Schultz has been a, on MTV. He was on Guy Code. That's kind of uh, kind of how he got his start. He's a stand-up. He does a lot of things on the Internet. Nobody on networks wants to pick him up because, you know, his jokes are a little out there. But he's got fans from all over the world. Everybody loves him. The Rock was posting about it. And I watched this special last night. Let me give you folks some quick context. Andrew Schultz sold the special to Netflix, and when Netflix saw the original cut, they wanted to cut 80% of his jokes, which you can't do. So what did Andrew Schultz do? Said he spent his life savings on getting it back from Netflix. He bought it back and sold it to the people. He's now made 3x what he would have made from Netflix from selling it on his website, theandrewschultz.com. And let me tell you something, Luke Morrow, big stand-up guys, as we know, this is top two, maybe not two. I've never wow. laughed harder at a stand-up special than Andrew Schultz. It was unbelievable. I encourage everybody to support this because it was incredible what he did, buying it back from a streaming service. He doesn't want to be censored whatsoever. What an incredible... I've never laughed harder. It was unbelievable, Lamar. Yeah, we've been talking about this off-air as well, and uh, you're really selling me on it. Yeah. So I may have to check it out this weekend. I know it's available for uh, $15. I may have to watch this. Uh, I am a fan of Andrew Schultz, and he's one of those, um, you know, he's become a really big comic uh, in this era. So I may have to check it out. But I do also love the idea of kind of sticking it to the man. Yeah. You know, Netflix didn't want it, so that's fine. And now it's worked out for him where he's made even more money off of it. And Netflix may be kicking themselves like, yeah, we should have just put it out there and uh, would have done very well for us. So I like that idea as well. And we see that with a lot of comedians and performers even podcasters now where they take it into their own hands instead of a radio station, instead of Netflix, whatever it may be, 
And I always like that entrepreneurial spirit of, you know, forget them. I'm just going to do my own thing, and it's worked out well for him, so good for him. Absolutely, and the special's up for 12 more days for purchase, so I can't even imagine. You'll probably get it at some point. I can't even imagine what the final numbers are going to be for Andrew Schultz, but like you said, sticking it to the man. I absolutely love that. Good for Andrew Schultz. One of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Luke Morrow, I'm turning my head. I love James Harden now. I understand what he did. He wants to get more stars. Obviously, he signed a two-year a $68 million extension. He uh, opted out of the $47.5 million, I believe, that he was supposed to get. Took less money for the Philadelphia 76ers. Who do they add? It's a great question. I'm not sure. You have Tyrese Maxey. Obviously, you have Joel Embiid. He's going to be there, it seems like, forever. They're building a new uh, a new arena, $1.3 billion in downtown Philly. It's going to be absolutely incredible. You have James Harden. I wanted to ask you, though, what is the next piece? Like, Do they need one more sharpshooter? And I know they've tried it out. They've had J.J. Redick on the team. They've had Danny Green on the team. Tyrese Maxey can hit it from deep, and James Harden can obviously hit it from deep, but he's more of, it seems like now he's more of a facilitator of the basketball. He'll hit a couple threes in the game, but James Harden's not going off for 40 45 like he used to do on any given night i'm just curious as who they will add as that next piece i really i really can't put my finger on it luke Mar. Uh, a lot of the talk i don't know if he's even signed yet maybe he just mentioned i don't know but about pj tucker yeah yeah i thought i thought he was going back to the bucks but that that could potentially be an option i mean pj is good for one or two corner threes yeah. you know every so often i enjoyed him on miami he always gives you know good effort but I, I feel like they need a sharpshooter, a guy who can hit about four to six. Obviously, they traded away Seth Curry, and he's a good option for that, so I'm not sure what they're going to do. But this team is one piece away. James Harden seems like he's in the best shape of his life going into this next season. We'll see, depending on how his contract goes. Who knows? He might blow up back to 220. We have no idea, but he looks good. He's training with Joel. I like this Philly team, but I just they need to add that one sharpshooting piece to complement those three gentlemen we just mentioned. Yeah, I do agree with you because Harden took on more of a distributing role so he could create four outside shooters, penetrate, have the defense claps, kick it out. And then Joel Embiid, obviously, he's a big guy that clogs up the lane and he handles the post area. So if you have the third option who stands on the perimeter, knocks down threes, gets the feed from Harden or even when they collapse on Embiid, you know, that could fare well for them. Seth Curry did lead the team in threes per game last year. As you said, he's gone, so you got to replace that. So I do agree with you uh, with, uh, that that should be the, the missing link there. And I give Harden credit for doing this. Uh, I've been hard on him over the years, but it's a selfless move. Look, he's still going to get plenty of money, but it's a good move to help out the organization, and a lot of athletes refuse to give up any sort of money to help out the team. So I like this move from James Harden. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I like the guy now. I, I hope he has a lot of success. Obviously, when it comes down, if they're playing Miami, I hope they lose, you know, four games to nothing, obviously. But I hope James Harden has success and Philly has success because Joel Embiid is that type of player where he, he needs to win a championship because he can do everything on the floor. He's yeah. seven feet, 280 pounds, maybe even 300 when he's all bulked up, can hit the three, can play in the post, can hit the fadeaway jumper. He's incredible. So this team needs to win one, and the city of Philly needs to win one. Those fans would go ballistic, as we saw after the Eagles won the Super Bowl a couple years back. Uh, Luke, the Browns, I know we talk about them all the time, but continuing to have some interesting moves here. They won't work out Cam Newton. I saw those reports. They're not interested in Cam Newton. 
but they're bringing in our guy, Josh Rosen, who we've talked about what it seems like way too much for uh, Josh Rosen's career, and A.J. McCarron for the for workouts. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that the Browns are hearing something that they might need, you know, some more options at quarterback if Jacoby Brissett doesn't work out? I'm just curious as why they already have three solid backup quarterbacks on the roster. Why are you adding a fourth? To me, it seems like the suspension might be a little longer than what the reports are saying. But like you said, we've seen two games, four games, eight games, 12 games, five years. I mean, the numbers are everywhere. I don't know what this means for the Browns, but if if money Josh Rosen is on the team, this team might win the Super Bowl tomorrow. There's no doubt about it. It is amazing that he's hung around this long, <laughs> and he's getting these potentially getting these opportunities. A.J. McCarron's another one. I did not know he was still in the league. It's been a long time. I'm old enough to remember when McCarron you know, he did pretty well as a backup with Cincinnati filling in. And then the talk at the time was like, hey, it was almost like Jimmy Garoppolo or Matt Flynn before him where you see this backup step in, play pretty well. And people were talking about McCarron. If he gets an opportunity, he could be a starter somewhere else. And I think uh, Oakland, when they were still in Oakland, traded for him or Buffalo. Somebody did, and at least to have him compete. But he's never been a starting quarterback, McCarron. I know he wouldn't be a starter in Cleveland either. Uh, but I'm surprised he's still in the league, too. I haven't heard that name in a long time. And I remember uh, years back when people thought he could be one of those backups that becomes a good starter. Those are two. Credit to them. Rosen, McCarron, you love those like Chase Daniel guys who just stay right. in the league for years, never play, and make millions of dollars. Good for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll see what this means. I have no idea. We're still waiting on Judge Sue L. Robinson to uh, make her decision, and that might go to court. Who knows? This might not end for a couple more weeks, Luke Morrow. Uh, interesting, you just brought up Jimmy G. Where's the guy going to go? I, I mean, very evident that the 49ers have made it clear that Trey Lance is their starting quarterback, and I don't think you can bring Jimmy G back in a backup role whilst Trey Lance is starting, so they have to trade him. And if they cut him or trade him, I do believe I saw this morning that they're going to save about $24 million in cap space, which is great for the 49ers so they can sign Debo Samuel because that's been incredibly quiet. They probably want to get this done as soon as possible, but to To me, there's only two teams out there for Jimmy Garoppolo. It's the Browns and it's the Seahawks. I don't think he'll have success in Seattle just because they're not a run-heavy team. And everywhere Jimmy Garoppolo has gone, he's thrown the ball maximum times, 20 a game, and they've always had incredible run teams. If he was on the Browns while Deshaun Watson is suspended, I think the Browns will have some success. That's a different story. And if, you know, even if he went back to the Patriots, if Mac Jones wasn't working out, that'd be a good option. But there's very few teams in the NFL right now that fit the style of Jimmy Garoppolo, the run-heavy team. If he was in Tennessee, he might be doing okay. If he was in Pittsburgh, somewhere else. But I just don't see any options for the guys right now. Are we going to see Jimmy G in the XFL? I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, the Niners may be best off waiting a little while to see if like there's an injury or something. Uh, I heard an interesting idea, though, this week that I, I have come around to. I think I like, mm. and it's the Giants. Ooh. Uh, now, I'm a Daniel Jones defender, but... You know, they didn't pick up his option. Uh, the guy that drafted him has gone. His original head coach is gone. So, Brian Dable, they have no connection to him, Joe Shane. And Dable was coaching in New England when Garoppolo was there. Right. So, they have that connection. So, I don't know if he fits his offense. I don't know. Brian Dable, you think of Josh Allen. And before that, um, you know, he's worked with some more maybe mobile quarterbacks. But they have that connection. They work together in New England. The Giants could certainly use a, maybe a better quarterback. 
I heard that idea this week, and I thought, you know what? That's not the craziest thing. The Giants in that open division, maybe you go get a Jimmy Garoppolo, you could be a playoff team. Yeah, I mean, it, it, unless, if they get the offensive line squared away, I mean, and you let Saquon Barkley actually have some time to run the football instead of just running right into the defensive line, I think they'll have incredible success if they had Jimmy Garoppolo and Saquon's healthy. But that's the that's the if-so facto right there. Saquon, Bar- If Jimmy Garoppolo would be successful because of Saquon Barkley in that offense. Yeah, yeah, that would certainly help. And the Giants also announced they're bringing back their uh, 80s-style jerseys. Here we go. I love this. The NFL changed this rule. We're going to get these throwback jerseys back. It's fantastic. The old Phil Simms Giants jerseys we're getting. So I love that. Uh, we'll wrap up your Thursday when we come back. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. It's Throwback Thursday. What's today? It's Thursday. Really? Feels like Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday has no feel. Monday has a feel. Friday has a feel. Sunday has a feel. I feel Tuesday and Wednesday. All right, shut up to both of you. On the Morrow Midday Show. Tell you what, July 21st is always a beautiful day, let me tell you. We started, I'll take credit for it, I started a trend with my buddies that whenever it's uh, one of my friend's birthdays, Mm -hmm. we always, well, nowadays, text, back then we used to, you know, see each other in person. We'll text one another and we'll build it up, like, hey, today's a special day, it's a birthday for a really special guy, yada, yada, yada. And then we just list a bunch of celebrities whose birthday, you know, (laughs) happy birthday to Cat Stevens, he turns whatever to and we ignore our actual friend's birthday. So then, of course, today, if you didn't catch it earlier, today's my birthday, so my buddies did that to me. And then unknowingly, and it wasn't his intention, but then my father sent me a list of everyone's birthday today saying <laughs> FYI, and he's just sending it. You know, he did wish me happy birthday, but he just sent it in case I was curious. But I got a kick out of that, too, because that's what me and my buddies always do, that we just look up whose birthday, well, whose celebrity you know, shares a birthday today, and we wish them happy birthday instead. Who's the celebrity you share a birthday? With? I actually have a pretty good list. Ooh. I do have Cat Stevens. That's why I mentioned him. He was nice. on the forefront. Uh, CC Sabathia. Ooh. Um, uh, Josh Hartnett, the actor. Sure. Who you know was he was a big deal about fifteen years ago. Uh, let's see. Oh, John Lovitz, the comedian who I love. Mm. Also, uh, we were talking stand-ups earlier. Steve Byrne. Okay. Stand-up comic. Yeah, he's okay. And uh, Damian Marley, Bob Marley's kid. Look at that. Yeah. There's a couple of other athletes as well. And I grew up a Red Sox fan. I think Nomar Garcia-Parr's birthday, I think, is tomorrow. And I always just love that our birthdays were close. It's either tomorrow or yesterday. I think I'm one off from Nomar. And growing up as a Red Sox fan, you love Nomar. So anyways. And by the way, they put, like, uh, these, you know, signs throughout the building. So very kind. Signs wishing me a happy birthday everywhere. Appreciate that. It's a little, I don't know if I would say awkward, but weird walking around seeing all these signs. But thank you very much. Nonetheless, and we'll be back tomorrow to uh, continue to look ahead to the football season. Baseball comes back tomorrow. Thank goodness. I mean, there's some games going on today, but the Braves come back tomorrow. You got nothing else to watch. Yesterday, today, nothing going on in the sports world. We'll preview the SEC tomorrow. I'll tell you my biggest concern with each NFC team tomorrow. We'll also try to build the perfect 17-0 NFL team tomorrow. Got a lot more to do. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast.
Life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. It's the Marmot Day Show on ESPN Radio. Thank you.